Time out. What's wrong? Okay. I got a, I got a okay. seven-year-old in the room. Just so you know, Farron, the star car shows up. It's during the uh, during the hoverboard chase uh, okay. when a jeep comes flying into shot down the street and just on the left hand side of the star card or star okay. car. Sorry, we'll notice that when we get there. That's cool. Yeah, everything okay? Oh yeah, I have to I have to bribe him to let his dad do bedtime. Oh. <laughs> it's, it's costing me an ice cream truck. Not a, not the whole thing. Just not the whole thing. <laughs> I was gonna say he's past, just getting a pretty yes. good deal there. Yeah. Also diabetes. <laughs> Well, she just said the truck, not the ice cream. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> see him tooling around Edmonton. <laughs> well, c- considering the shit you see in that city, I mean, it's better than running around naked, I guess. That seems to be the, the thing to do in Edmonton. So, Welcome to We Came From The 80s and 2015, and then back to the 80s, and then back to the 50s, and then back to the 1880s, whatever. The podcast where we talk about movies that we thought were cool. I'm your host, Farron, and today I'm joined once again by Heather. Hi, everybody. And Adam. Hello, everyone. Now, of course, we did Back to the Future 1 back in um, June, and we had planned to jump right into 2 and 3, but... You know, life get, gets in the way. What are you going to do? But personally, I think the reason this took so long, I think Heather is chicken. Are you chicken, Heather? Are you Nobody yellow? Nobody calls me chicken. I'm glad we got that out of the way because I was worried maybe people would miss that Marty McFly doesn't like to be called chicken. I don't think that is relayed adequately in the two movies we watched. I don't know what you're talking about. It's set very firmly in the first movie. It's a very strong thematic point. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, Jesus, they really beat you over the head of that one, don't they? Um, so it's, 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 it's nearly as subtle as the clock tower. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty bad. So, of course, we're doing Back to the Future Part 2 and Part 3, which seems appropriate to do them as one episode because they were filmed together. They were written together. They were filmed together. They were released only a few months apart. Both of them were directed by Robert Zemeckis. Both of them were written by Zemeckis and Bob Gale. Both of them star Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Thomas F. Wilson. Elizabeth Shue stepped in as the character Jennifer. And of course, James Tolkien is back as both a principal and the head of discipline and later as a marshal. And in the third movie, we are joined by Mary Steenburgen, she plays, was it Clara or? Clara, yeah. Clara, yeah. Uh, it's funny, this is the second. Sorry, go ahead. No, sorry, it's just Clara again. So, doc- Dr. Who there. Oh, is it? Okay. Oh. <laughs> um, right? I, I, I don't I watch Doctor that. Who, so. So, a, a girl named Clara hanging out with a time traveler is, is yeah. mildly it's, funny. It's a bit on the nose. <laughs> well, in this case, this is the second movie Mary Steenburgen has done where it ends with her uh, falling in love with a time traveler. She also did that movie Time After Time, where H.G. Wells uses his time machine to chase Jack the Ripper into the future. 
I'm obliged to take you back to face the consequences of your acts. You take me back. How do you propose to do that? By force? Be reasonable, John. We don't belong here. A 19th century gentleman. What? You don't close your eyes. And a 20th century woman. Well, neither do you. Join forces to capture a criminal from the past at large in the modern world. Where he meets this woman and H.G. Wells meets her and she, they fall in love. And the end of the movie is her going back in time with him to be her wife. So she's a little typecast. I wonder if that was seriously was part of the reason they grabbed her just because she'd done it before. Uh, maybe they thought that'd be amusing. So Back to the Future 2 premiered on the 22nd of November, 89. And part three premiered on the 25th of May, 1990. Uh, now, just by way of comparison to talk about some money, the first movie cost $19 million and it made 388 These two movies together cost $40 million. Part two made $356 million. Part three made 246 So the best way to think about this is as a $40 million movie that made $602 million. That's a uh, so pretty good return. Yeah, it's not quite as much blow for blow as Back to the Future Part 1 did. Mm -hmm. But then you have to think about these three as a whole. Three movies for $59 million made $958 million. Like, these days, when you put out a big summer blockbuster like a Marvel movie, they expect it to make over a billion dollars. These films did that in the 80s, and that's pretty impressive. If you notice, they make less money every time. First one made 388, second one made 356, third one made 246. So yeah, so they, they, they go down, as one would expect. People who just get bored and say, I don't want to see another one of these movies, or forget about them or, you know, any one of any one of a number of reasons. I mean, I don't even think Empire Strikes Back did as well as Star Wars or Return of the Jedi doing as well as the original. You know, I couldn't I, tell you about the Marvel movies, but yeah, I don't know. I I would guess that the Marvel movies have probably gone up just based on public popular opinion. But yeah, it's possible. I mean, I don't know about the Avengers movies. I mean, I know that I mean, if you think of quality, think of like the Iron Man movies, those movies started really good. And went down, and I'm pretty sure they didn't make more money as they went. That, that's also that's also some personal opinion stuff, too. I'm sure that of there course. are some people that think that Iron Man 3 was just a true delight to watch. I'm, they're I'm strange, sure. shameful people, but they're out there. <laughs> Not on this recording. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I mean, I, I, I wonder if maybe Avengers Endgame did super well just because everyone knew it was kind of the end of that mm -hmm. era of Marvel movies. But sure, we're not doing Marvel movies today. We're doing this one. So... Oh, damn, I was confused. Guys, I'm sorry. I got to go watch these movies now. Yeah. We're, uh, we're in an alternate timeline now. Exactly. Is this the one with uh, Trump Biff or? <laughs> uh, well, yes, actually. It's awesome. Oh, God, you're right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So with these movies, just like the original, I probably either rented them or saw them on Super Channel. Just like with the first one, it's the movie everyone wanted to see. Everyone anticipated there would be a sequel to Back to the Future, but that was never actually planned. It's just that the movie was such a smash hit. They said, let's do more of this. Mm -hmm. And so they brought everyone back. The only two people who didn't go back, who come back were, the again, the, the, the actress who played Jennifer because she was care actually caring for her mother who was diagnosed with cancer. Oh. Um, and Crispin Glover, who plays the dad, he is not in either of the sequels. So when you see him, it's either footage from the first film or it's another actor with a mask. 
Really? Yeah. So hmm. when you see like, oh, so grand- is that how they did? Oh, okay. Like Grandpa hanging upside down in the second movie, and there's a bit at the end of the third one with Dad at the door. That's why you see him at mm-hmm. a distance, so the yeah. screen the screen could hide the mask. Oh, yeah, it was another okay. actor. So okay. So how about you, Heather? When did you see these films? Um, I I didn't. <laughs> oh, I saw number two on TV. You know, I I a year or so after it came out, uh, I made it about. 20 minutes in and turned it off and didn't bother with three. I saw them both this week. So why did you turn off two? Um, the same reason I didn't like the f- first half of the first one. It was uh, no story, nothing to get behind. It was all just images of ads like, buy Pepsi, look, n- mm-hmm. Nike shoes, uh, here's another product placement. Everything's chaos, nothing's Nothing's a coherent story. There's there's yeah. no one I cared about. It's, it's funny because you messaged me yesterday and you were not enjoying part two. I, I, <laughs> if it wasn't for you guys, I would have turned it off again. Did you eventually come around to it or did you still not like it? I never liked it, but it got less painful for the last part. Okay. Uh, Adam, what about you? Um, I saw Back to the Future 1 when I was a kid and then I saw bits and pieces of Back to the Future 2 and 3. And I mean, re-watching them now, I am very much on the same page as Heather. It just, it didn't stick the landing for me. It's, I'll, there were lots of times where my eyes kind of glazed over and I realized, oh, right, I, I checked my phone a few minutes ago and I hadn't stopped checking it. And okay, <laughs> nothing really happened. Okay, it's sheer spectacle. And I, it's it's great to go and watch it and just kind of turn your brain off and let things happen in front of you. But it, it just didn't hit for me. I mean, none of these movies particularly did. Yeah, it's it's funny because going into this project, I you know, into these episodes, I didn't like three at all because it's it's the outlier, right? It's not about jumping back and forth to the future. It's just getting mm-hmm. to one place and staying there. And I thought, and maybe it's because I'm not a fan of the Wild West at all as a, a setting. I, I never really liked the movie, but I appreciated it more when I watched it two months ago. And when I watched it this morning, I actually appreciated it a lot more as its own movie. Mm-hmm. And it's because it's not Marty's story. It's, it's Doc Brown's story. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Um, I couldn't help but think last night that a more appropriate setting would actually have been the 1920s. Because that's Doc Brown's youth. You know, 20s or 30s or whatever it was. That, I think, would have been more interesting. I get they wanted to do something wacky and crazy and the Wild West seemed interesting and i wonder how much of that is just hinged on the fact that in 1985 the gun he had to defend himself against the libyans was this rusted out six iron which if you notice at the beginning of the third one is is in perfect condition Mm -hmm. i wonder if it just it survived the fire of the house maybe that's why it just looks so bad uh but you know i i guess i appreciated like the second movie doesn't get good until they leave the future because i think the future is lame because they went with silly like they didn't try to be serious at all i mean it's a comedy but they didn't even try to make it on any level intriguing it's just it's nothing but goofy and goofy doesn't do it for me it's one of the reasons i dislike mel brooks it's like what is funny about this and there was nothing that happened like there was no attempt to imagine what might the future actually be like. You know, they just went crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can kind of see. That. I mean, like, I don't find it particularly funny either. It's closer to Three Stooges level of comedy than I find it to be like Mel Brooks comedy. It's just very 
like I said, like it's that's, all it's all spectacle. That's that's a bit rude to the Stooges. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the Stooges is its own thing, but it doesn't land for me, that part, uh, to use your term. Uh, once they got back to alternate 1985, and, and I found that interesting, it had mm-hmm. kind of a Mad Max feel to it almost. Much like the dystopias you see in like you know movies of that era like uh, Running Man mm-hmm. or uh, Predator 2 even. You know, there's sort of yeah. urban life gotten worse. Right. And then... I liked him back in 1955. I thought that was interesting. A second Marty back in 1955 when yeah. you're sort of crossing paths with yourself. I found that a little more interesting. And when you get back to the old West and they sort of wipe the slate clean, because could you imagine if part three had been more of 80, 1985 and 2015 and 1955? Like after a while, it would have been so confusing. I don't think anyone would have stuck with the film. No, definitely uh, not. It's already this rat's nest of, of plot lines and yeah. the bits where he does go back to 1955 the second time some of them are really good some of it's also very contrived so that they can of course just they they can go look at this cool thing that we've decided to do and we're going to do the dual uh dual shot where we've got the same actor on screen in two different places yeah it was interesting to see in the in the second and third film when they had that when you have the same actor on twice mm-hmm. you could always see which one was filmed in front of a green screen because he was a different color. He was almost, he was a little <laughs> washed out. Did you notice yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> just, just a little. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed it, especially in uh, part three, because it was all filmed on set outdoors. So, oh uh, yeah. All that natural lighting. It was hard. Like there was one point where Irish McFly and Marty <laughs> McFly are walking side by side. And it was so obvious <laughs> that one of them was not there. Yeah. Right, let's just hop into this and sort of see where it goes. Yeah. So uh, the second film, I actually like how they start the second and the third film, which is with a scene from the previous, from the end of the previous movie. Mm-hmm. But this one, they almost had to because a, it had been for what, th- uh, four years since you saw the first one. So they wanted to remind the audience where things left off. But of course, also they had a new actress for Jennifer. Right. Um, and I think Elizabeth Shue did fine. I mean, she has no real part in the movie. She's in, what, five minutes of the whole film? Um, yeah. She, she faints. She talks about our wedding. She's, she's not even an 80s girl. Like, they didn't even give her enough time to become an 80s girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is the same scene. Of course, they replicated it blow for blow, except with a new actress. And you know, off they go. But then they insert this little thing of Biff coming out to say, hey, Marty, do you want to see these matchbooks I made? Which, of course, will be important later in the film. And then off they go to the future. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's a kind of a, it looks like they they sort of grab some stock footage of flying through the clouds. Yeah. And that looked pretty cheap. And then we see them in the future and they're, uh, you know, they're flying through the rain. It's kind of funny, uh, you know, the, those those metal glasses that uh, Doc Brown is wearing, they were uh, just sheet metal. He couldn't mm. see a goddamn thing. <laughs> Which is why he takes them off so damn quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if you mention, or if you notice later on, he mentions that he thinks he's being followed by a taxi cab in his rear view display, which is obviously yeah. the glasses. Yeah. Um, and... You know, at the beginning, he just I think when they made this in 1984, when they filmed it for the for the first film, he was just meant to look futuristic and funky. 
I don't think they intended it to have any function. It was just, how can we make him look weirder? Well, we'll mm-hmm. give him a weird clear plastic tie and this weird jacket and, you know, give him these funky futuristic glasses. I don't like, you know, they had to sort of reverse engineer his look for actually both movies because they had to do it for Mr. Fusion as well. Yeah. Like it's not until the third film that we learn that even in the future, the, the car still runs on gasoline. The Mr. Fusion is just for the time circuit, mm-hmm. uh, which seems to me a particularly stupid way to engineer a car, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> the, it seems to me like they did a lot of work. They didn't have to. Yeah. Like specifically with like the look, like, I mean, I guess you, you want to give a reason for why your character's wearing the stupid glasses, but by the same token, you're in a movie where you get away with enough stupid stuff everywhere else. So you can say, ah, oh, he's wearing a stupid pair of glasses. Yeah. But it's a, it's a one-off line later in the film. Like I think we're being yeah. followed. And of course they were, they're being followed by Biff, by old yeah. man, uh, Biff, yeah. but uh, yeah, whatever. So. Wait, we can actually see our future. Doc, now you said we were married, right? Uh, yeah. Was it a big wedding? Marty, we're well, going to be able to see our wedding. Wow. I'm going to be able to see my wedding dress. Wow. God, I wonder where we live. I bet it's a big house with lots of kids and... How many kids? Doc, what the hell are you doing? Relax, Marty. You're supposed to sleep and the alpha rhythm generator. She had gone from being a, I won't say a serious character, but... Not a ditz. Like in the first movie, I don't think she came off ditzy. She came off as just a non-character. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least that was my feeling. And here she comes off as kind of brainless. Yeah, she she goes from being a non-character to being a non-entity. Yeah. She she makes her appearance at the beginning of this movie and then is basically nothing until the end of the next movie. Yeah. I, I, I sort of wonder why they didn't... Why they didn't just get rid of her earlier. Mm-hmm. But I guess they couldn't figure out how to do that. So they just kept leaving her places. Yeah. <laughs> stacked, on, stacked on garbage, stacked on her front porch, you know, whatever. Stuffed in the closet. Stuffed <laughs> in the closet, yeah. So they, you know, so anyway, the the DeLorean lands just off of town center. Uh, there's the joke about the weather, uh, that the uh, the weather stops. It stops raining exactly on time, down to the second. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's cool. And... We learned that Doc has actually gone through a rejuvenation. Uh, he was wearing this scary ass mask so that he wouldn't, <laughs> so he wouldn't scare the kid by appearing too young. Okay, and at least we get to learn the initial problem on this movie, which was the beginning, or which was the problem for the end of the last movie, which is there's something that's got to be done about your kids. Which is that, is it Marty Junior? Is that the kid's yeah. name? Yeah. So Marty Junior is going to commit a crime. Uh, the next day he's sentenced to 15 years in prison and then his sister will try to break him out and she gets 20 years in prison and you need to stop this by pretending to be your son, your own son and telling Griff no. <laughs> that's very subtle. I wonder who yeah. Griff is related to. Yeah, no uh, kidding, eh? But, and like, uh, this, it got me thinking, like the whole premise of this is just so bloody flawed. If Doc Brown actually cared about preservation of the timeline, then he would not do a damn thing about it because that's just the way she goes. That's yeah, what his timeline is. Yeah, for all his obsession about preserving the timeline, yeah. the entire basis for the second movie is changing the timeline. Yeah. Like, okay. <laughs> uh, all right. But uh, he doesn't seem too, you know, too set on that anyway because by the end of the third movie, he decides he wants to hang around for Clara or Carla or whatever her name is. Yeah. Um, 
So he's not the scientist he thinks he is. But, you know, it is amusing. They give him clothing to wear uh, these silly auto Velcro boots for people who are, you know, who aren't just lazy enough to wear Velcro shoes. They need shoes that do themselves up. Like. I could have used those when I was eight. I could use those now. I'm okay tying my own shoes, but I'm silly that way. What can I say? (laughs) I suppose I also wear boots a lot. So, yeah, apparently for 2015, when there was all this hubbub about, you know, the, the day that Marty comes, you know, arrives in the future, apparently Nike made these. Like they actually made a limited edition boot with, with a stupid 1980s computer voice and like, Okay. Did it actually have a little robotic arm that took the Velcro down? Or I have no idea how to. But uh, so yeah, uh, so um, they dump they dump uh, Jennifer in in the, in the garbage. So I... <laughs> on, on top of some cardboard bales. Okay, fine. She's not like they chuck her at a fucking green bin. <laughs> no, they but they do put her on top of uh, they do put her on top of some recycling. And if you'll notice the recycling, it's all laser discs and CDs. Yeah. Did you guys notice that? Yeah. Uh, and they show the, the newspaper, which, uh, again, in actual our 2015, uh, USA Today printed that front page as a, uh, a wrapper around the day's paper, which is cute, I guess. They got, you know, they got into it with, uh, with Universal Studios. Universal certainly wasn't going to say no. It was free, free promotion for a, what, a 20-year movie or a 30-year-old movie. So good for them. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, they give them these... Uh, these uh this jacket which looks like the the jackets the visitors wore in the 1980s uh, miniseries v <laughs> it totally did yeah uh, but uh, and those were modeled on like they were meant to be like fascist uniforms so not a good look but uh you know whatever uh, i do like what they've done to the town square it is very pretty mm-hmm. like the the clock tower and the whole thing. Now it's a mall and okay. Uh, you know, the, the, the town square is now a lake. It's really nice looking. Uh, you know, there's the gag about jaws 19. If you're curious, I think they only got as far as jaws, uh, three. I also but. like the subline for that. Jaws 19. This time it's really, really personal. <laughs> I think this, I think that was the tagline for the second film. This time it's personal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've never seen the sequel. I saw the third one. Uh, it's only notable because uh, the audience has hated the ending so much that they refilmed it. And for the and for the second week, they had a new ending. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Which, if you're curious, it doesn't make the movie any better. It doesn't make it any worse. It's still a shitty mm. film. But And that one was 3D. Okay. Yeah. But you needed the old, go- the old glasses. Yeah, get... The red and green or red and blue, uh, red, whatever red, they were. Blue, yeah. Red yeah. and blue. And then you get to see the cars and, you know, he sort of looks around and he sees a, uh, an antique store with a Mac and a TV and a <laughs> couple of copies of Jaws 2. Was that? Yeah, the... they actually, the, the Jaws you see there in the bottom left, that's mm-hmm. the NES game, the Nintendo Entertainment System game. Oh, is that which, what it is? for the record, sucked. <laughs> it wasn't just a, a sort of bad game. It sucks. <laughs> it, it's like famously bad. And then they go into Cafe 80s, which is just... Oh, God. Like, Cafe 80s reminds... Like, this is the perfect example of why I don't like their future. It's not that it's any even 
10% serious attempt to imagine what the future would be. It's they threw as much shit at the wall as they could think of. And that's what their setting of 2015 is. Yeah. Like the Max Headroom caricatures are cute. Do you know, do you know what that character is, Adam? No, I'm assuming that you're talking about the robot waiter TV yeah, screen. The, yeah, the, the TV screens with the twitchy, like this, the Michael yeah, Jackson. Mike and Jackson, the, Ronald Reagan. Ronald and... Reagan and the Ayatollah Khomeini. Uh, but you don't know who Max Headroom is, do you? No. Heather, do you remember Max Headroom? Oh, yeah. The Pepsi Matt, commercials? Matt Brewer, yeah. Yeah, that that's was a true, good yeah. show. It was a different show, that's for sure. I don't think it lasted very long. No, it, did, uh, it didn't. It's, uh, I liked it, though. Yeah, it was sort of post-apocalyptic. Yeah. I'm not sure when it took place, but yeah, so Max Headroom, Adam, you'll have to look it up, but Max Headroom was a character played by the comedian Matt Frewer, uh, who's still kicking around. He's still doing his thing. And uh, it was just, it was meant to be this, like this AI character who was glitchy because it was the 80s and he was, oh, okay. you know, and he was, a, wasn't it just, Heather, wasn't it like Pepsi commercials? Isn't that what he did? Well, no, that that was a spinoff. Uh, the show premise is the he was a journalist or something. And he got, yeah. he, yeah, knew, he, he knew something and I had to d- download his consciousness into the computers. Right, right, right. And then but he I... like went rogue and was trying to bring down the system and stuff. Right. And, th- yeah. and then from there, the character sold Pepsi. Yeah, I like, thought it was the other way around. I mean, I'm, I could oh, was be wrong. It the other way around? I'm sure it started with, uh, with the Pepsi commercials. I, c- I could be wrong because I never really cared that much. Yeah, and and that's the thing. It was one of these things. It was quintessentially '80s, and here you know they have Michael Jackson as he looked in Thriller, and they have Reagan versus the the, the Iranian Ayatollah Khomeini. I'll admit, I found their argument really funny. Welcome to the cafe '80s, where it's always morning in America, even in the afternoon and noon. Our special today is mesquite grilled yes, sushi. You must have the Caucasian special. Yes, you go special. You go special. You go special. All I want is a Pepsi. Trying to convince Marty to buy this food or that food. Yeah. You know, like you said, you know, welcome to the Cafe 80s, where it's always morning in America. That was yeah. Reagan's um, presidential motto. It's oh, okay. Morning in America. It's morning again in America. Today, more men and women will go to work than ever before in our country's history. With interest rates at about half the record highs of 1980, nearly 2,000 families today will buy new homes, more than at any time in the past four years. This afternoon, 6,500 young men and women will be married. And with inflation at less than half of what it was just four years ago, they can look forward with confidence to the future. It's morning again in America. And under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder and stronger and better. Why would we ever want to return to where we were? 
less than four short years ago. Because the 70s were rough for the for Americans. Uh, nothing like now, but, you know, like, they had uh, Nixon. M-O-U-R-N or? Yeah. These days, it pretty much is. But uh, actually, it's funny. Well, not funny, but the Lincoln Project, which are these ex-Republicans making advertisements against Trump, they actually did a parody of the Morning in America ad that Reagan did. And this one is M-O-U-R, Morning in America, talking about the deaths from COVID. But no, the idea was it was like a new American birth and everything would be great again. It's why Reagan won, because he offered them sort of this new sunrise, which was total bullshit. But whatever, Uh, it's 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 political advertising. Um, and of course, his big adversary was always Libya and Iran and the Soviet Union. So at least the argument they have is, I guess, cute. I wasn't. Meh, I don't know. Yeah, it's, you know, and then he asked for the Pepsi. And mm. like you say, it's we, we were, you know, we were joking about this last night. It's like it's 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 advertisement after advertisement. It's placement after placement. And I'm kind of two minds about that. On the one point, it becomes really obnoxious in these films how often the product placements are are thrown in your face. But on the other hand, it makes it seem normal. Like no one walks into a cafe and says, give me a cola. Right? No, but I mean, like I would, I'd be on the same page with that if he walks in and says, give me a Pepsi. And he gets this weird, strange, goofy looking Pepsi. I'm not so much on board when he walks into a building that says Pepsi on the side after going past a Pepsi billboard and says, please give me a Pepsi on a bar that's got Pepsi all across it. Yeah, I guess. And Um, Doc Brown told him to go get a Pepsi. Yeah. Here's 50 bucks. Go get a Pepsi. Wow. Okay. I I must've missed that. Yeah. That's a little much, (laughs) you know, well, it's like Heather and I were joking last night. I was talking about an old, uh, PC game called ghost recon advanced warfighter. I remember that game. Yeah. And do you remember that uh, Mexico city was apparently taken, taken over by Axe deodorant? Um, (laughs) Oh yeah, that's right. (laughs) Every goddamn billboard was the same Axe billboard Mm -hmm. with this scantily clad babe on the front with axe in her hand it was on billboards it was on bus shelters mm-hmm. it was everywhere and the running joke was like you know your 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 team the ghosts are deployed to mexico city to stop a military coup i'm not sure if it was a military coup or a corporate coup by axe deodorant because <laughs> it was almost ridiculous like sometimes you'd be in a firefight and in your field of vision there'd be like five billboards all axe and this is almost as obnoxious, um, that, maybe more that, so. That was kind of an '80s thing, though, wasn't it? Like the product placements? product placements. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because corporate life was suddenly viewed as cool. I mean, how many movies in the '80s were about corporate life? Um, All of them. Well, many of them. I mean, <laughs> Wall Street, as an example, that's the big one. You know, greed is good. But even Michael J. Fox did a comedy called "The Secret of My Success." which is an utterly immemorable film. I can remember one scene out of the film. That's it. Not even one scene, one, one shot. But it's just him as this corporate climber. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, corporate corporations were everything. And, you know, in 2015, you know, Marty's boss is, uh, is Japanese because in the 80s, Japanese corporations were on the upswing. Um, that, that, that didn't stick around you know it was a big deal in the 80s so it's not surprising that 
it's a Japanese corporation he works for. Go figure. But yeah, I will say that I love 2015 Biff, the guy with, you know, um, with, 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 the, with the cane. With oh, the, with the, uh, yeah. Yeah. He's he's all right. 2015 Griff, I could oh. use for like a selective mute system where it just like quiets every single line that he has. Someone fly. Have you made a decision about tonight's opportunity? Yeah. yeah. The voice is a little much. Yeah. Well, he's, but, he's glitchy, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The cybernetics didn't work. Yeah. There's a couple of things a, that didn't work. Yeah, including Lots the writing. Things. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the problem. He's not in, like, Thomas F. Wilson, he does a great job in these movies overall, considering these were his first movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to give him credit because Slimy Biff in normal 1980s, Biff in the 50s, uh, Biff in alternate 1985. Biff in 2015 are all distinct characters. And of course, Biff in fixed 1985, where he's the car mechanic or whatever. They're all distinct characters. He was asked to play multiple versions of himself. And I think he pulled it off. I would agree. Griff is just annoying. Um, I found Griff annoying. I found his group of thugs annoying. Yeah. So, you know, Marty's in the cafe 80s pretending to be his his own son and old man Biff comes along and, you know, knocks him on the head with his cane, which again, I thought that was cute. Uh, and then we learn that he's still being bullied. What is it again? Griff. Yeah. He's getting bullied by Griff into doing something. Do we ever find out what the something is? I don't think we ever do. I told you to put two coats of wax on my car. Grandpa. Why am I paying you? That's why he's bullying grandpa. But why, what is it? What's the big thing that he wants Marty McFly in on? Oh, he's bullying. Uh, Are they going to rob something? Some kind of, yeah. I have no idea. I don't think they ever say. Just like we never <laughs> find out what it is that old man Marty does that gets him fired. Except that he, yeah, he he's does in on it. something. He does a transfer of some kind. I can't help but think that both of those things are... They couldn't have found 30 seconds in the script for those, really, for all this other crap that's in there. You know. Well, they had to fit in an hour of Jennifer running around her future home and being upset. Yeah. Uh, and then we have the cute thing, obviously, is a setup for uh, for part three, which is the wild gunman game. Mm. You know, the two little kids. And you notice who the little kid was, right? And one of the little kids? No. Was Elijah Wood. No. Oh, was it really? Was he? Look at the kid in red. Son of a gun. <laughs> huh. I would have never picked that out if you had pointed it out to me. Yeah, I I noticed it once just because he's he's a very dis- like he's got a very distinctive look to him. He's yeah. managed to hold on to his boyish look even into adulthood. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, that's Elijah Wood. But then Benjamin <laughs> Bratt, of course, is a good actor. He's one of the thugs. You know, the, uh, a lot of sort of small-time actors got par- got bit parts in these movies. Um and yeah, so he does the wild gunman thing. Here's the thing. The wild gunman NES game was never an arcade cabinet. They had to build it for the uh, for the movie. I mean, I, I could see it. I, if you wanted to, you could read into it as being a, a cute little futuristic anachronism, but... <laughs> well, yeah, I think mostly it's they needed a Wild West gun shooter game to show that mm-hmm. Marty can shoot, and this game existed, so they probably went to Nintendo and said, you know, just like with, with Pepsi, hey, we'd like to put you on screen. Mm-hmm. So, so we can yeah. add Texaco and Pepsi, Pepsi and Pepsi, and then Nintendo to their uh, sponsorship overload. Don't forget Seven Eleven. 
Yeah, that one I don't think is a big deal because it's just mentioned. Yeah. Um, just like the Texaco thing, I didn't have an issue with it that we see Texaco in, in the 80s, it's just a gas station. In the 50s, it's like the pit crew. And then in the future, it's all robotic. I, yeah, I can I mean, that. I, it's, it's something, I mean, it's just, you know, it's kind of that, it's that corporate thing that very much shows out and... And that's kind of why I like mediums like this, like our podcast, where we're not sponsored by anybody. Excuse me while I sip on this cold, crisp Budweiser. Budweiser, the king of beers. Anyways. <laughs> I think Heather's the only one actually drinking a beer today. Yeah, but it, but it ain't that. <laughs> I, on the other hand, am drinking a Red Bull. It gives you wings. What the hell are what you drinking? That? I just saw four Calgary on there. Uh... Four River Brewing, ISA. I huh. have not had that yet. I'll have to give that a shot. Very nice. <laughs> and now back to our show. <laughs> <laughs> Commercial break over. <laughs> I also have homemade oatmeal chocolate chip cookies that I'm staring at. Ooh, wondering nice. if I'm going to get to eat them. You know, if you just mute the microphone, I'm pretty sure there's a mute button on the side of that microphone. You can just go to town on that thing. We're going to keep you talking for two hours. You're not I'm trying to pay attention to you guys, too. <laughs> it's it's a pretty in. close thing. Uh, you know, jump in and, and complain about things whenever you want here. No, you're you're doing great. <laughs> oh, great. That's that's good to hear. OK. Um, so anyway, so far, it's all terrible. And the actor who plays all the biffs is awesome. I actually didn't mind Marty so much. Uh, I think he's a fine character. He's an 80s character, whatever. But yeah. finally, Griff and... How is it that Marty that 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 Marty Jr. gets in there and then they don't see the two of them? He, he comes Marty stumbling see- in, and right. uh, Marty, future Marty, di- or past Marty, dives behind the bar, and then right, Marty Jr. Right. comes in and has his altercation with Griff. Um, He's thrown behind the counter. Yeah, and, and then, then they do the palette swap. With, yeah, with the hat. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I think is interesting, and I was thinking about this this morning, is that you know. The one thing we, and we, of course, we made fun of this at the beginning of this podcast is, you know, are you chicken? And mm. Marty has an impulse control problem, which is what causes all of his, his issues. But he's learning slowly but surely over the course of these three movies how to control that, but also how to use his aggression. Like the first time he successfully controls his aggression is when he does Johnny Be Good. Like he knows how to pour that into something productive. But then he knows how to walk away at the end of the song. He doesn't say, let's do a third song. And here, he puts on his kid's hat. He steps, he, like, he stands up behind the, the bar. And Griff backs off. Because he's got this really serious look in his eye. Mm-hmm. And it even, like, it causes Griff to back off. I mean, Griff gets over it and pulls out a baseball bat. But mm-hmm. the fact is... He knows, like, and he does get into a fight, just like he almost got into a fight with Biff back in 1955 at the cafeteria. But this time he knows when he's outgunned. Like, the only reason he didn't get into a fight back in 55 is Strickland stepped in. Here, he knows he can't win, so he just makes a run for it. But he still knows how to use his aggression to cause people to back off. Mm -hmm. You know, and sort of as he goes along, he learns how to control his anger more. It takes three movies for him to make one movie's worth of character progression. But then these movies aren't meant to be realistic. So I guess there's that. Uh, so we get to see a rehash of the 1955 skateboard run. And this time with the uh, the hoverboard. Uh, <laughs> Heather, do you remember the the mockumentary they did in 1985 about how these hoverboards were real? Oh, God. 
<laughs> yeah, I've vaguely now that you mention it. Yeah. Yeah. They did it as a joke. There, there was no thought, Adam, that in, in the 1980s there was going to be a DVD with extras on it. But these are the sort of things that they could create and they'd be shown like on Super Channel, like two in the morning, mm-hmm. like you know, pay TV movie shows or maybe Entertainment Tonight would carry a bit of it. And one of them was this quick little five minute documentary about how these hoverboards were real and parent groups had stepped in to stop them from being on the market. Oh, God. And I believed it. I bought into it. I mean, I was like, I was what? 12, 13 years old. I was a dumb kid. I didn't know any better. And a lot of people bought into it, but it caused Universal Studios no end of grief (laughs) because, well, there's this, you know, this interview with Robert Zemeckis saying that they're real and parents group said no. And Bob Gale says, because he was one of the producers and he carried on working for Universal, he said, for 20 years, it was nothing but grief because it was made, it was made as a joke. They filmed it in five minutes between shots on the set. Well, love it. Beautiful. How many think geek April Fools jokes do they actually have to make? Yes. Well, inc- I mean, <laughs> I have I have a uh, monolith action figure. That was the original. That was the original joke. Because of course, it's just a block of plastic, right? They think geek did it as a joke, and so many people tried to order it and got pissed off at them. They went and made it. Um, and and geeks like me, well bought it <laughs> so um and yeah then they did the there was the what was it the tauntaun sleeping bag remember that one yeah i wanted that if i if i had had more money at the time i would have bought one yeah and then there was the best was the hoodie the wizard's hoodie that you made motions with your hands and you'd have all sorts of crazy led lights and sounds yeah and they actually made that one too <laughs> like based on the motion of your hands you get different lights and different sounds That's and good. Yeah, I believe they called it the Virginator 2000. Uh, because <laughs> you got to admit, it's it's a cool idea until you realize uh, you're never getting a date if you wear that thing. I don't know, mm-hmm. man. You take that to mm-hmm. a grave, you might do pretty well. That's true. Considering everyone's a high on ecstasy, yeah, probably be pretty popular. Yeah. But uh, yeah, just, the, the whole... Sorry, go ahead. Just quick funny anecdote. I'm sure you'll cut this out. But um, in the 90s, there was a paid... Uh, I think it was like on CBC that would air. It was an informational commercial advising people to not believe everything they would see on TV. It was a oh the the hippo uh, the house hope the house, the hippo. house hippo yeah 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 I remember those. My stepsister believed it until she was like fifteen. She thought that they were a real thing that they were just serious? a pest. Yeah. It's nighttime in a kitchen just like yours. All is quiet, or is it? The North American house hippo is found throughout Canada and the eastern United States. House hippos are very timid creatures and are rarely seen, but they will defend their territory if provoked. They come out at night to search for food, water, and materials for their nests. The favorite foods of the house hippo are chips, raisins, and the crumbs from peanut butter on toast. They build their nests in bedroom closets, using lost mittens, dryer lint, and bits of string. The nests have to be very soft and warm. House hippos sleep about 16 hours a day. That looked really real, but you knew it couldn't be true, didn't you? That's why it's good to think about what you're watching on TV and ask questions, kind of like you just did. A message from Concerned Children's Advertisers. But yeah, my stepsister believed it. Maybe not until she was quite that old, but until... Until a little bit longer than she should have. She she believed in house hippos. 
Yeah, that's hilarious. Uh, yeah, so for the record, <laughs> these hoverboards. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, you see, Heather. Um... <laughs> As Abraham Lincoln once said, don't believe all the shit you read on the Internet. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so these, yeah, so in fact, these hoverboards are not real, but how the hell could they be? You know, someone, I mean, over the years, people have tried to make hoverboards. Mm-hmm. Often they had like a bottom piece and it was just magnets, but that doesn't work the minute you hit like, oh, I know, a curb. Like, how would this thing work in real life if you couldn't touch the ground to propel yourself forward? But yeah, there's whatever. There's nothing to kick against. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Although it worked for them. Yeah. Well, if, if, if it works in a movie, I mean, I saw it. You saw it. We all saw it. Yeah. So it must be real. Um, it is funny that sort of old man Biff comes down and is like, there is something very familiar about this whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's, that's cute. Um, I do love how he grabs hold of the, uh, the flying Jeep. And Adam, as you noticed, uh, the star car from uh, last Starfighter is here. Yeah. So as the Jeep comes down, it's just on the left-hand side of the road. It's the silver car in the front of the line there. Is it just as it's landing? Uh, yeah, just just before he uh, he grabs onto the back of it. Okay, hold on. There it is. At uh, eighteen twenty-one. Yeah, it's the star car. I hadn't noticed that. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it's the last Starfighter star car. That's cute. Um, yeah. So, you know, he's uh, what do they call it? Skitching. We just we, yes. I was informed that this meant skitching. Okay, so he skitches for a little bit and. Okay, winds up over water. We discover that uh, Griff has some sort of psych- some sort of psychotic hoverboard called the Pitbull, and he hooks on his three cohorts, and they wind up overshooting Marty and crashing into the courthouse, and all is well. Uh, well, the funny yeah, thing is, is, go ahead, go ahead, no, no, go ahead. I was going to say, like, this is the one of the most over the top things about this whole film this whole uh, episode in this trilogy is griff with the this insane baseball bat and a rocket propelled hoverboard that's got three tethers on the back of it yeah uh it's to me it's silly again this is my problem with the whole future thing it's Mm -hmm. all just wackiness uh and it doesn't fit with the rest of the film i find uh and then you know so anyway marty bumps into this old guy who I don't think we've seen before who wants, uh, who's looking for money to save the, the clock tower. But of course we'll see him later in the film. He's the guy who repairs Biff's car after the manure accident from the first movie. Right. Anyway, Marty goes and he buys the almanac and in a super subtle scene, they explain that it's got a dust cover, uh, that looks exactly like the inside cover. I wonder if they'll use that later. Um, <laughs> In the meantime, uh, you know, Marty uh, bumps into uh, the dock again. They go back to pick up Jennifer, but the cops have already grabbed her. They scan her. They take her home. I I can't help but notice that they check her ID. They don't notice, wow, you look awfully young for your age, but. But I mean, if the if the dock got facial reconstructive surgery, I suppose she could have as well. I guess I I don't Um, know. I. Why didn't they just walk up and say, there she is, we'll take her home? It's, yeah. The scene sucks. I'm sorry. It's, just, yeah. it's not a bad, it's just not a good part of the movie. So anyway, they, they take her home. And this is another thing that always annoys me about the future when it's badly done is they try to come up with all this slang. 
you know, nothing but zip heads and this and that. And like, they've got all these different terms for what drug addicts of the future are. Mm-hmm. And it seems so silly. Like they're trying to come up with slang because there was such a difference in slang between the eighties and the fifties. Uh, and I noticed Marty in these two movies says, this is heavy a lot, like yeah. a lot. And so they're trying to lean into that, but it all came across so silly. Like saying with the, the LED displays on the cops hats, like why? <laughs> yeah. Why? Yeah, well, because, Farad, you need to be able to see in bright neon green if you're being arrested by a police officer or a transit cop. Yeah, sure. I guess so. Um, <laughs> because it's the future. Yeah, duh. <laughs> this is the problem. Everything is because it's the future as opposed to... I mean, I, I'm not expecting some gritty realism, but they went so crazy with it. And I wonder why, because it doesn't benefit the movie to have been so over the top about every little thing. Mm-hmm. It just seems silly. Uh, so she goes home and it's, uh, you know, the house looks very normal. It's actually the most normal part of this future, except that there's no door handle. She tries to escape. She can't. It is amusing to note that Michael J. Fox plays multiple parts in this scene, including the daughter. Oh, is that who played the daughter? Yes. Okay. That's that's Michael J. Fox as well. That's why they make a point of when she comes down the stairs and says, Mom, is that you? That's why the camera lingers on her face in such a close-up, even though there are very few close-ups in these films at all. They yeah. want you to notice, oh, my God, that's Michael J. Fox. <laughs> it's silly. In the meantime, Grandma and Grandpa come over, and what we've learned is in the three years since acting in Back to the Future Part 1, uh, Leah Thompson has not learned how to play old yet. No, nope. Has not. She's she's still just as bad, and that's too bad. But she's an excellent actress. Uh, if you remember her from Red Dawn, I think she was excellent in that. Yeah, she was. I mean, not a big part, but I think she did a good job of it. But here, she's just. I can't, with the exception of, actually, no. In the past, she's not interesting either. Well, she's more interesting in the past. In the past, but she's that. Sort of, she's an 80s girl in the 50s, but in the future, she's just boring. And Grandpa here, again, it's a different actor, this time hanging upside down. And if you notice, his voice is different. And, you know, they did what they could because without the actor. They couldn't very well leave Grandpa out of that without saying, you know, Grandpa was hit by a Mack truck in 1992. What are you going to do? Like, it's... Why can't Grandpa have just died of a heart attack? Grandpa's not around anymore, kids. I know, I think they figured they could do it without him or maybe they yeah. had just written it to the point where they like they were f- too far along in the script process to try and strip him out when mm-hmm. it was just easier to just find another actor. Um, like they already did it at the beginning. Actually, no, they don't even do it at the beginning of the, of the second film. They just use footage from the first film of uh, mom and dad arm in arm seeing uh, Marty with his girlfriend. I oh, think this this might be one of only two scenes where we see new actor whose name I don't even know or care about. <laughs> it, it would have been super easy just to cut him out. Yeah. yeah, but that's true of a lot of the characters in this, including Jennifer, who didn't need to be there. But, no. No, but, I mean, it would have been... The movie wouldn't have been any different if Jennifer had passed out in the back of the DeLorean. And at the end of the movie, they find her in the trunk of the, or the back of the DeLorean. Or stuffed in the trunk. Or stuffed the trunk, yeah. That at least like, would have been amusing. If they'd yeah. stuffed her in the trunk. 
there would have been no difference in this yeah. entire film. Yeah, but, you're like, right. With George, if 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 you had asked me if I saw him in this movie, I would have said no. He's so un- he's so unmemorable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in the meantime, Marty and and Doc follow the cops. The funny thing is, is that they seem to have taken a long ass time to follow the cops. Like they were really, really behind them. And we learn, of course, that uh, that Biff is following them. That's one thing we missed is that Biff oh, yeah. is now on to what's going on because he sees Marty, like our Marty, talking with Doc. And then he sees Marty Jr. come out of the cafe 80s. Of course, totally oblivious to what's going on. This kid, I don't know, he's high on something or was born with a few screws loose or something. <laughs> Marty Jr. just seems utterly disconnected from the world around him, even when he's at home. Yeah, even he's just kind of gangly and 14 and disconnected and far more hooked into everything that's going to happen 30 minutes from now than what's happening right now. Yeah. So he sort of stumbles out and Biff goes, hey, what's going on here? And then he says, you know, time traveling DeLorean. I haven't seen that since 1985. So he clues in immediately what's going on. And he follows Marty and Doc to, was it Hilldale's the name of the community. In the meantime, Marty changes back into his old clothes. I couldn't tell you why he bothers other than I guess they need it for wardrobe comparison. Biff gets in, you know, you know, while they're off dealing with trying to steal Jennifer back from her house or her older self's house, uh, Biff gets in the car, drives off. Okay. Uh, we get to see dinner at the McFly residence with, was it uh, three Michael J. Foxes playing Marty, his daughter and his son. Yeah. And wearing two ties while he's at yeah. it. Yeah, the, the double tie. Um, did you notice if in the scene here where he pours the coffee or the juice or whatever, mm-hmm. did you notice how badly that was done because it was being done by a robotic arm or something that they could that was wrapped in green so it could be taken out of the scene? Did you notice yeah. that? Yeah. Like, it's so yeah, obviously not a human holding it. It seems so disjointed and poorly done and just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there's a, few, there's a few of them like that. Like, later on when, in the, in, in the third film, when they hand him a bit of rabbit. It's very clear that Irish Marty does not hand our Marty the plate. Mm. Like it's very obvious that they use the robotic arm or uh, a stage hand with a stick or something like that. It's very obviously not real, but I guess they did the best they could in, you know, in the late eighties. In the meantime, the whole point of this whole scene, which if you notice drags on for about 10 minutes is that, we learn that Marty and Jennifer ran off to be married at the Chapel O' Love. Uh, that's that's where you got married, wasn't it, Heather? The Chapel O' Love? Mm, no. That, no? No, we, we did Elvis. Oh, you did Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry I missed your wedding. But, uh, you know, we learn that, you know, that they, they sort of ran off and got married cheaply. We learn that he was in some sort of car accident. Uh, that he injured his hand and had to give up his music. And we also learned that he knows this guy needles. Now I don't remember needles from the first film. Uh, I Did don't I recall needles either. Because I know we'll see him at the end of the third film. Uh, well, because he's the drag racer. Obviously yeah. that's our fault. Um, evidently, you know, the, as we've determined already, all these things were, were set up in the first movie. So we just weren't paying attention. Yeah. This is the problem with trying to tack on two sequels. And if you remember, this was the same problem that The Matrix had with Matrix Reloaded and Matrix Revolution. The first movie ended rather definitively. It was a success. They said, let's make more. And then they had to retcon things into the first movie and cram in hints and portents and ideas that the first movie didn't have. 
and it doesn't quite work because it's clear he's meant to know needles and needles yeah. says are you in are you out are you chicken again very subtle he's in, you know he says i'm in whatever in is uh, clearly some sort of computer fraud he sticks mm-hmm. his id card in needle says thanks man see you tomorrow immediately his japanese boss catches him and fires him and fires him by fax because in 2015 everyone has a fax machine in their house has um, six of them apparently six of them how many do you have heather how many how many fax machines in your house uh uh, apparently my printer will fax if I ever set it up, but <laughs> yeah. that's it. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is my mother had to fax something yesterday to the government because they don't do email uh, yeah. attachments. Yeah. Because uh, it's not but you can fax them. Yeah, but, but you can fax them shit. Yeah. Uh, like she, she had to go find, she had to go to Staples to fax them. You know, yeah. it's, it, who the hell uses, I mean, a lot of, I know a lot of copiers do faxing sort of as an afterthought, like they can do copying and scanning, so why not? Mm-hmm. Um, but you still have to have it set up. My office does PDFs. Yeah, but you're not Revenue Canada or Canada Revenue Agency, so. True. So uh, something that is kind of fun to note uh, is that after the scene in the the town square, Doc got changed into a different shirt and pants. His shirt has a train and cowboys on it. I did not notice that, but that's not surprising. It's, <laughs> I mean, remember <laughs> that his. His his favorite historical era conveniently is the Wild West. Yeah. Um, because who doesn't like colonization and genocide? You know, it's yeah. all very cool. But we have to look at it from his point of view, growing up in the 1920s. I mean, if you think of someone who was born in the 20s, the Wild West isn't far off. That's where your parents grew up. Yeah. You know, or if your parents are young, where your grandparents grew up. You know, it's... Again, I think I mentioned this in the first one that I saw an interview with this guy, Bertrand Russell, from 1955. He was 80 years old. His grandfather met Napoleon. So a guy who was alive in 1955 knew someone who met Napoleon. Like that's, you know, so we we forget that the, you know, that the Browns, of course, he mentions they've only been, the Browns have only been in America since the turn of the century. Uh, but, you know, like his his family memory goes back to the 1800s easily. Mm-hmm. You know, his parents would have been born in the 1800s. So, you know, the fact that he's got this love of the the Western era probably comes from a, you know, having, you know, having lived in it, having lived in a time when people could have described it to him from a firsthand point of view. But also the 50s the Westerns were very popular, you know, Gunsmoke and Wagon Tombstone. Train. And- Tombstone. The movie Tombstone, the the Clint Eastwood movie Tombstone. That's where we get the the metal plate gag. No, that's that's not the name of the movie. Is that not Tombstone? The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Oh, is that the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly? Okay. Yeah, famous uh, famous film. Uh, Tombstone is a movie about the shootout at the OK Corral, and that came out in the nineties. Oh. Tombstone, Arizona. That's where the shootout at the OK Corral happened. Oh, okay. I uh, yeah, I just have my names backwards then. Yeah, it's the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Oh, but, okay. Anyway, Biff manages to make it back. He escapes from, uh, you know, like he, he gets out of the vehicle. As he's coming out of the vehicle, he smacks himself with his cane, breaking it. Uh, I got the impression there's something we're supposed to know because he comes out of that the DeLorean injured. And is, is he injured or is he old? I think it's a little bit of both, but I get the impression that, like the impression I always got when I watch that is, oh, what happened to him in the past? 
that he comes stumbling out of the the DeLorean the way he does. But it's nothing. Like, it, it just doesn't go anywhere. Um, yeah. In the meantime, you know, Marty, you know, they grab Jennifer out of the house. They head back into 1985, and they set her down on her porch. He goes home, and it's pretty clear right from the get-go that this home is not like it's not his house. There's a black family inside. Uh, dad, uh, you know, his his bedroom is now. Uh, I think he said there's two girls in it. The dad comes into the baseball bat, chases him out, says, "We're not going to sell. You can't bully us." He starts walking through, you know, his neighborhood, and it's like it's Mad Max territory almost. Though I have to ask, how a Peugeot found its way all the way to California? That ugly ass red car with the white top is French. They didn't sell those in North America, so I'm not sure how the hell that way found its way there. Um, it's a different timeline. Sure, let's go with that. He meets Mr. Strickland, who's a psycho with a shotgun now. That's amusing for 30 seconds. He goes into the downtown. He bumps into his friendly neighborhood homeless person who's now very mean. And we go to Biff Cas- Biff's casino. And we learn very quickly that Biff has this almanac that he purchased, and he's gotten rich off of it. Now, I'd mentioned this in the chat last night. The Biff in this timeline, I couldn't help but think, reminded me a lot of Donald Trump. I'm not sure about you guys. Uh, I mean, he's he's got Biff Tower with a big old casino in it. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> so I went on to Google, and I was planning to type in the sentence, was Biff Tannen based on Donald Trump? I got as far as typing, was Biff. And Google finished that sentence for me. So clearly I wasn't the first person to ask the question. And the answer is yes. In a 2015 interview, the writer, Bob Gale, said they based it, they based this version of Biff Tannen on Donald Trump, which is interesting because Trump didn't open his casinos into the 90s. It's also not totally fair to base uh, to say he's based on Trump because Biff Tannen's casino was successful. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we get, is this the second or third time we've had this joke of Marty waking up with his mom in front of him? This is the second time. Yeah. And this time she's got these, I don't know, double D torpedoes that she's had implanted. Mom? Mom, that can't be you. Yes, it's me, Marty. Are you all right? I'm fine. I'm fine. It's just that you're so, you're so big. Dude, ew, but okay. Yeah. And what we learn is, you know, we've already learned that in 1973, they got married, right? His mother married Biff, and we learn it's because uh, dad was shot. Mm-hmm. And we learn that his sister is in, well, she's in trouble with credit card companies. The son is in and out of jail. By the way, there is a scene with the older son, who is a burger flipper in the original movie. There's oh, really? a scene with him here they cut out, where he passes, where Marty passes him being thrown out of the casino, drunk off his gourd. Huh. And they just got rid of the scene. I, I guess they didn't need to see it. Too many references, one after the other. Yeah. Uh, and it didn't really matter, I guess. But, you know, what we learn is this Biff is a monster. I mean, he was always a monster, but here he's he's truly a monster. Um, he's got thugs with him, as he always does. Uh, you know, the mom says she's going to leave him. He pretty much threatens to cut off her children uh, funding, you know, your, your daughter can deal with the credit cards on her own. I'll have your son's bail revoked. Um, and why isn't Marty in Switzerland in boarding, in boarding school. school? I would have found it interesting had we got to see Marty in this timeline. 
that at least would have been interesting. Oh, that would have been too challenging to have the same character playing or the same person playing two characters in the same screen. Yeah, yeah, that would, have been, that, that would have been too much for them. But <laughs> I don't, I mean, don't you think that at least would have been like from a character development point of view, at least that would have been something to have him confronting himself, this punk who keeps getting thrown out of boarding, boarding schools, who didn't have the influence of George McFly, nerdy as he was. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I, don't... I, I think it would have been. I, I also feel like it might have. I don't know. I, I would guess that it was probably a we've done this too many times. We don't want to overload the audience with multiple Martys, maybe because we've already done main Marty. We've already done Marty Jr. And we've done Marty Sr. in the future. Yeah, but wouldn't you rather have seen uh, alternate 1985 Marty than Mr. Strickland? Oh, absolutely. You know, or alternate homeless person like a five second or 10 second scene. Like, who cares about that? Yeah. You know, I just. I don't know. It would have been more interesting. In the meantime, this is where she learned, or this is where Marty learns that uh, George McFly is dead. He goes to the graveyard. There's a lot of graveyards in these two films. Yeah. Uh, and we encounter Doc. They go back to his lab, which of course is just a wreck. And we learn that George McFly was murdered, that Doc Brown was locked up. Uh, we also, this is also where we discover where it is exactly that Biff from the future went, that he went back into the past with the sports almanac. And Remember we talked in the first movie how everything is just sort of, I think, Heather, you complained about this. Like, this is where I met your father, and this is where we kissed for the first time. Here they literally draw it on a blackboard for you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 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 That, was, that, that wasn't too subtle for you? I was texting you about how bad this was at this point. So It's interesting because I found the 1980s the most interesting part of this film. That and the, and the future. Like, it's the second half of the film I like. Mm-hmm. Just because we see how bad it can get. Of course, as we all know in real life, we are living in that alternate 1985 timeline. But that's a different matter altogether. Uh, uh, I don't know if we're quite that bad yet, but we're getting yeah, there. We're getting there, yeah. So Doc says, you know, we need to find out exactly when it was that Biff got hold of that book. He says, well, I'll ask him. And here, just like confronting Griff in the Cafe 80s, Marty is really on the ball here. He's aggressive, but not overly so. And he's able to hold his own against Biff. Because at this point, he's encountered Biff as an old man. He's encountered Biff as a young man. He's encountered Biff in two versions of his 1985 present. Actually, this is the third 1985 version because there's yeah. Biff as George's boss. There's Biff as the uh, the mechanic. And now, uh, yeah, and now there's Donald Trump Biff. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's getting really used to confronting this guy. He's learning how to push his buttons, how to knock get into a fight with them. And, you know, there are portions of this, this movie and the next one that I look at and I think there was something much more interesting they could have done with it based on the tone in those scenes. And this is the first of those scenes in the office. This guy comes to me. I don't know who he is. He hands me this book and he says, but by the way, some crazy old man or a kid is going to come to you one day. And if they do, you got to kill him. I don't know. I saw a lot of potential in that scene and maybe where it could have gone. I don't know about you guys. I... I I think so. I think that there was more that they could have done with it because it seems like so much very just flat explanation. And, you know, here Biff does the typical villain thing of, oh, I'll tell you my plans, but then I'm going to kill you. It's, yeah, there, yeah. there's more that could have been done here. Yeah, it's the monologuing. I, I get it, but... yeah. I don't know. I, I found this worked here because 
he was telling us a story. It wasn't just, let me tell you about my ridiculous evil plan. It's, here's actually how I got here. It's actually an origin story, mm-hmm. in a way. Heather, at what point did this movie start to change for you? Because you mentioned that the movie got better. When did it get better for you? Uh, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so, you know, Marty steals one of the matchbooks, which says, you know, Biff's Casino on it. And we won't, that won't even really pay off until the end of the movie. But of course, from the very beginning of the movie, remember car mechanic or car detailer uh, Biff came out and said, Marty, do you want to see the matchbooks I just had made? And that's where he saw the DeLorean take off to the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we know that, you know, he has like the, the family photo of him and his brother and sister. Now we have an indicator, you know, that's going to change back and forth depending on the timeline. In the meantime, there's a shootout. He makes an escape. Biff uh, takes him to the roof. He admits, I killed your father. I, I did enjoy Marty jumping off the building here. Yeah. That was cool. It was a very confident move. It's what the kids would call a boss move. It is neat. Because he's so, like, he's so confident about it. He just sort of steps back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is a cool scene. I really like it. So then they fly back to 1955. And then it's interesting because here, here's the movie is really no longer about Marty. Now it's about Biff. Yeah. And Biff is a piece of shit. Like he comes from a bad home. That's clear. Like it's clear. Grandma is kind of mean. But here's the thing. Biff is super good looking and he's got a nice sense of style to him. He's got a gorgeous car, which we learned, by the way, is a 47 Ford. Yes. He's got everything going for him, but he's just such a resoundingly fulsome piece of shit. Like there's nothing good about this guy. Like he's mean to little kids. He's mean to his grandmother. He's mean to his teachers. He is mean to his henchmen. He is mean to the girl he loves. He, I mean, is there anyone in the world this guy is not mean to? No, he's, he's just an asshole. It doesn't matter. Like even down to the guy that he is paying to work on his car, he's a dick to for for a paid service. Yeah. Which by the way, that's the guy who will later ask Marty in the future for a hundred bucks to help save the clock tower. Mm Mm-hmm. And you know what? It's it's just I you almost want there to be a redeeming quality for Biff. You almost want there to be a reason to like go, okay, well, he may be a giant bastard, but at least he's X. But he's one of those characters where he's just got nothing positive going for him. He's he's Joffrey Baratheon from A Song of Ice and Fire. He's just <laughs> yeah. a giant monster. There's, there's more to Joffrey. Yeah. Yeah, Joffrey is a much more awesome yeah. character. It's funny because yeah. I'm just going through, I just started uh, season one and I'm going through them now. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like there are layers to what kind of person Joffrey is. He's a scared little kid, but he's also, he's full of ideas of who he should be. And But yeah, like Joffrey, Biff has no redeeming qualities. <laughs> Joffrey is more 3D, but. Yeah, he's a more rounded character, but he's still a rounded character that you kind of want to splat. Yeah, but Biff is a dick. And so, Marty in incognito dressed like a 1950s biker with, you know, all <laughs> leather and, and, and the sunglasses and the whole nine yards follows Biff into town where we learn this amusing thing that we've never learned before, which is that he is the only one who can start his car. This I learned is a trope from 50s movies, from 50s teen movies about, really? kids, about teens with cars that huh. this car only starts for me. And it's just that cars are finicky back then. Yeah. So you remember, he doesn't have a kill switch. He's just the car only starts for him. And again, this is another one of those things. It's a character trait 
that Biff, the only thing he has a positive relationship with is his car. But we never got that in the first movie. It was no. just it was just car. Yeah. You know, um, it was just his car. For all we do, he had three more of them sitting back in the garage that his parents bought. Yeah. And that's the thing. You know, and they add more depth. They have to, because now we're going to be dealing with this character for this whole movie. He's no longer just this guy who pops in once in a while to be the bad guy. He's the focus of the second half of the film. Um, so now we have this relationship with the car. Why do we have that? So old man Biff can prove he is someone worth listening to. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what it is. You know, Marty is hiding in the backseat of the car when, when teenage Biff comes out. And old man Biff is in the in the car and says, get in. I've got something for you. Well, actually, we missed a part, didn't we? Which is when he sexually harasses uh, oh, um, uh, Lorraine. Yes. Like, I'm trying to think what would happen if some guy tried to lift your skirt, Heather. Like, how many teeth would he have? Uh, none. None. <laughs> there need to be a lot more punches to the head in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Even in 1955. That was like, yes, guys could be more grabby, but or couldn't be, but were. But he's on the he's on Main Street. He tries to lift her skirt. Are you kidding? Like that was as as over the top of this film is. I thought that was that was very rapey to me. Oh yeah, hundred percent rapey. Like even more so than when he literally tries to rape Lorraine later that night in the car. Like this, weirdly enough, in its own way, it's worse. I, I'm not sure why that is because rape is obviously worse than picking up someone's skirt it's just it's clear this guy has no clue how to interact with humans like he chases her down the street screaming you're my girl it's meant to be i'm gonna marry you Mm -hmm. you might as well have said and my knife says so too you know or i have a chainsaw just for you like he's you know what i mean like he's jason Voorhees level unsociable Uh, yeah it's not that it's not that he's flawed it's that he's a flaw. He his character is a flaw. Like yeah. there is there isn't a redeeming quality to him. There's nothing that he does that's less than monstrous. Yeah. He just he is the the reason that you're annoyed in this or upset in this film. Heather, you're totally into him though, right? i I'm really indifferent to him. Like I really I just don't even care. Like he's he's barely two dimensional. Yeah. Like the main characters in this are, are two dimensional and he's, he's not even that. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I find him like, especially the last few minutes of scenes with him. I just find him so gross. Yeah. Like he's so clearly a malfunctioning human being. Like they, it's almost like they went out of their way to flesh him out badly. Like let's add layers to this character. All of them bad. Yeah. Like once again though, they shouldn't have even bothered. Well, yeah, I, yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's not like we didn't hate him before. Like yeah. they, they could have just left him with the asshole T-shirt on and left it at that. Yeah, I guess so. I guess they'd have to spend time actually developing Marty and Doc, and we couldn't have that. <laughs> well, yeah, but then they would have had time for that scene that you wanted between the Martys. Yeah, I guess. So then the next scene is old Biff driving home with teenage Biff. And this scene I remember because this is the scene that all the entertainment shows like Entertainment Tonight and whatnot – this is the scene that they showed. This was the promo scene. Really? Because it's one of the best of the dual actor scenes because they were able to use uh, the metal bar down the middle of the windshield to divide mm-hmm. off the scene so they could just film it twice with an extra in the seat to pass back and forth the book. Yeah. 
Because if you notice, this is the only one where he is lit the same way. Like he's mm. not lighter the mm. way he is when when they do when they do it with Marty, it's a disaster. But here it looks pretty good. In the meantime, he explains to him, you know, he proves to him the book works by conveniently tuning into a game in the last 20 seconds. Isn't that convenient? But yeah. then, of course, so was the lightning strike. But OK, what are you going to do? Marty gets locked in the garage eventually. Eventually, Biff goes off that night to the um, to the dance with Marty in in tow. Uh, Doc misses him, heads back into town where he bumps into himself. I like this scene. I really like it where Doc talks to Doc. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think that, that they managed to dance around that pretty well. I would like to have seen this scene go on longer. Uh, yeah. Even if, in fact, I think it would have been better if young Doc Brown and old Doc Brown had seen each other. If young Doc Brown realized, you're me, you're from the future. Because he's the one character who could handle it. And by the way, that would also be a reason why he decides to read the letter in the end. Uh... That actually would have been a retcon, like a retroactive changing of the of the story that would have worked. Yeah. I saw myself in the future. We had this conversation and it got me to thinking, maybe I'm maybe, you know, maybe the future's gonna be okay and I can take a peek. Also, the actor is really good. Like, yeah. you know, Christopher Lloyd is by far the most accomplished actor in this film. He's also the oldest actor. You know, he's the one who's been at it the longest. I mean, when did Taxi come out? Mid seventies, I think. Sure. Um, I'm not sure. It's, yeah, seems right. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's been a it's been a while. Like he's, you know, he'd been in other films. We we mentioned, you know, Heather. You reminded me he was Butch Cavendish in Lone Ranger. Is the only interesting character in the whole damn film. Um, <laughs> and it would have been interesting, like a two or three minute scene between the Doc Browns. I thought that would have been worthwhile, but missed opportunity like a lot of them. And then sort of the rest of much of the rest of this movie, uh, because I want to move on to the second film. Much of the rest of this movie is a reenactment of the enchantment under the sea dance and Marty sneaking around to avoid being seen by Marty to avoid being seen by Biff because he's trying to get this damn almanac and you know, there's some hijinks involving Strickland being a boozer, drinking out of his coffee cup. And so, yeah, the whole thing is his hijinks. There's the payoff of the dust cover, which is it turns out that he was looking at a porno magazine called Ula La. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Subtle. Yeah. And I was trying to think, when did Playboy come out? Why didn't they just use Playboy? Probably because they couldn't convince Playboy to uh, pay the money to be in the movie. It was founded in 1953. It existed. They could have pulled a 1955 issue and shown it. I'm actually surprised considering how everything else in this goddamn movie is a uh, a product placement. Yeah. I'm not sure why they didn't go with that because that would have seen that would have been a uh, a given. But oh, well, so. Yeah. Yeah, whatever. So in the meantime, he realizes he doesn't have the almanac. He's got this this French nudie magazine called Ooh La La. That's very, very subtle. <laughs> and eventually he manages to save the day because uh, what's his name? Uh, Biff's thugs chase him down and then they see him on the stage singing Johnny be good. He sneaks across the, the stop of the, the top of the, the stage drops really heavy sandbags on them. And I've worked in theater for the record. All three of those young men would have died <laughs> if, if sandbags that heavy dropped on them. Uh, yep. it, it would have broken bones, broken their necks. Not one of them would have walked. But 
It's shocking, I know, that this movie isn't uh, realistic, but there it is. In the meantime, Doc and Marty hook up again. They chase they chase uh, Biff home, in, in, and there's a little bit of hijinks there, including Marty using the hoverboard to hang on to the back of the car, skeeching or skitching or whatever the frick it's called. Did you ever do that, uh, Heather? Did you ever do that, try, try and steal... Uh, uh, steal someone's book out of the back of their car while skitching? Uh, no. No, I didn't. I didn't really steal a lot of things. <laughs> Missed opportunity from your A youth. lot of things, she says. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I do like how they point out, it's like, why don't we just land on top of him? It's like, he's driving a, 40, a 47 Ford, we're driving a DeLorean, he'll tear through us like we're made of tinfoil. Yeah. Uh, and that's certainly true of those. Like, those cars were built like tanks. Yep. Uh, they, were, they were built of, they were like, I'm trying to imagine what, a 47 Ford engine in a modern constructed car would do in terms of speed because they'd be like half the weight. Are you seriously looking this up? Yeah, was... Adam, really? I'm, I'm just, I'm just curious. Apparently it ran a flathead V8. Okay. Uh, doesn't, what's the displacement on it? If there's anyone yeah. in the world who's less about cars than me, I haven't met them. Yeah, no, it was, oh, it was a 4.2 liter engine. Yeah. It was, yeah, no, that's a big oh. engine. Is it? That's a big engine. Yeah. My my truck runs a 3.5. So imagine if it didn't have to drive a steel car. Imagine if that were driving. It's basically a... an I-beam with wheels. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like imagine if they had, if they put that thing in a modern vehicle constructed out of thinner metal. You know, I'm only seeing this thing is pushing up to 110, 125 horse. So... A good amount yeah, of torque. But... Yeah, but remember how much, like, think of it this way. It's driving, like you, like she said, an I-beam with wheels. Mm. Imagine oh, yeah. if, if it were driving a modern vehicle. Yeah, no, those were, those were steel body construction, not driving, like, an aluminum frame vehicle. Anyway, they managed to get the, the, you know, in the end, after some silly hijinks, Marty manages to get the, uh, the, the almanac, and he's pulled away by this string hanging from the DeLorean. Because it's something, one thing we missed earlier is that when they arrived in 1955, they hid behind the same billboard that Marty hid behind in the first movie. Mm-hmm. And when he takes off, he grabs one of these, you know, these strings with the little flags on them. Yeah. Uh, he gets that caught in the vehicle, which is conveniently a way for Marty to sort of lower himself down and get picked up by the car. And this is how he eventually gets the almanac. He grabs the almanac, grabs hold of the of the the rope, and flies away with the, the DeLorean. DeLorean. While Biff runs into a manure truck again. Yeah, which is his second run in the manure truck. Yeah, and uh, they're going to do that in the third one as well, of course. Of course. So nice. yeah, so they head back to that billboard. He burns the uh, uh, the book immediately. The matchbook changes from casino to auto detailing and the Emmett Brown committed headline that he's been, that Doc Brown's been carrying around is, I think it's Emmett Brown commended, commended. whatever. Yeah. In the meantime, of course, the storm, the storm that created the, you know, that, that destroyed the clock tower and all that, that sort of rolled in on them. And because it's coming from out of town, it hasn't hit downtown yet. And Doc Brown has some trouble and he gets struck by lightning and the, the vehicle seems to explode. And then what happens next is my favorite scene out of all three movies, which is that the lightning comes and then it starts to rain. And this car drives up the road and a guy in a trench coat and a hat comes out. Are you Marty McFly? 
I have something for you. And it's a letter from Doc Brown from like the 1880s saying, I'm okay. This guy is from Western Union and it's been sitting in their safe for 70 years. And there's this big bet about whether he would be there. And I, and I, I will say only half jokingly, if I were to remake Back to the Future as like this gritty Netflix television series, this would be the first scene of the show. Because there is a genuine mystery being presented here. I have this letter for you. It has been waiting for you for 70 years. What is it about? I'm not sure what you guys thought of the scene, but I found it very evocative. It's the most compelling part of these movies from a storytelling perspective, from the idea of creating a narrative and driving it forwards. This was the moment where, in my opinion, anyways, I was the most engaged. Mm -hmm. Do anything for you, Heather? Or Yeah, like the, this last bit is where I started actually paying attention. I I nearly started to care here. Very noncommittal. I get it. I mean, it's if the movie doesn't do it for you, it doesn't do it for you, right? Um, <laughs> but this, I thought this presented a genuine mystery. Yeah, uh, no, this finally something happened, but it took yeah, it, it took an hour and a half to get here. Yeah, it, yeah, it took a yeah, it took an hour and thirty five minutes. Uh, so you know, he runs back into town where. The, the original Marty is headed, headed home and, you know, he goes over to Doc Brown. And he says, I just sent you back to the future. He's like, yeah, man, I'm back. And he passes out. And they finish this movie in a way that pisses me off. Back to the Future 2 ends with a trailer for Back to the Future 3. All of the mystery that the end of this movie presents. And they show you this stupid ass trailer for the third movie. Great Scott. Yeah, well, I mean, that's annoying because he says that a lot in the second and third film. Same with, mm -hmm. man, this is heavy. Like, I get it. That's what they say. But they leaned on that way too much. It drives me nuts that they included this stick around for part three. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, we know there's going to be a part three. Don't show it to us. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, to me, it's cheap, but it's not offensive. It, it's just it's it's more of a cash grab because you've got the letter from 1885. So, you know, that they're going back to the Wild West course and i mean like that one is fairly cut and dry and easily put together to begin with mm -hmm. uh, but it's it's definitely cheap that they go look at all the new things you're gonna see like marty in a stupid goddamn outfit yeah and that's the thing i i, I thought i thought they took a lot away because uh, from the mystery of that encounter on the road with mm -hmm. the western union guy yeah mm -hmm. they could have left the audience wondering what is going to happen in the past are yeah. they dialing the darkness up just a couple notches? No, it's a wacky Western. Come back in six months. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, you know. they, they, it's, it's the demographic again, though, right? Because at, at the time, they didn't give kids a lot of credit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, this is the era of Temple of Doom. Yeah, like all three of us would have been fine with it. But like maybe the, maybe the dumb kids they were used to needed the... <laughs> yeah. No, you're yeah, not wrong. I mean, you know, we've talked about how the cartoons and the movies designed for, designed for kids in the 90s are really lame. They got so much more gentle and silly. Remember I showed you the images from uh, Secret of Nim 2 and how lame it all was? It was this so is the bad. same. It's the same thing. It's almost like they were afraid to have the intensity that 80s movies tended to have for kids. Like Goonies is a violent, intense film. Raiders of the Lost Ark, Star Wars. Even the first Back to the Future, there's some there's an intensity to them that these films start to get away from. And I wonder how much of that is because by the mid 80s, parents groups had gotten very loud and had started to um, have influence. 
darn you parents. But uh, damn parents and their helicoptering. Yeah. Uh, this was an issue in the 90s. I mean, you grew up with a lot of these. Like, do you remember the X-Men cartoon from when you were a kid? Hell yeah, I did. That was a great show. That cartoon was fucking lame. Like, I'm sorry. It was wimpy and silly and the animation was bad. Now compare that to like G.I. Joe or Transformers, which granted are not great cartoons, Mm -hmm. but there's more violence. And it's not all about, yeah, violence, but the themes were serious, Mm -hmm. you know, and it seems like the late 80s movie studios have started to become afraid of backlash. Yeah. At least that's what I noticed. Even later, even later seasons of the cartoon G.I. Joe got a little more ridiculous. And I think it's just, they were afraid to go dark. And so they want to keep reassuring you. No, no parents. It's okay. You can send your kids to see this and they won't start playing D and D and worshiping Satan. You're good. And so. yet here we are. Hail Satan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Roll so show, deception. Yeah. So let's just take five minutes, sum up the second film and then just jump right into the third one. Okay. So Heather, you seem to be the strongest critic of this film. So why don't you lead off? Same as I said in the beginning, there was, there was nothing for me to care about. There was just nothing. Like, I I really tried this time. Not when I saw it on TV a million years ago. But, yeah. like, I tried to find something to keep me from wandering off. And, dude, there was there's nothing. Until, like, the last 15 or 20 minutes, there's just nothing there. Yeah. I, I love Christopher Lloyd. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I enjoy Marty McFly. And the, the Biff guy did a great job. The end. That's That's all I got. Yeah, good performances and yeah. yeah. Adam, um, yeah, I'm I'm in line with Heather on that one. The the acting that we got out of um, uh, you know Christopher Lloyd and um, Michael J. Fox, Thomas Michael J. Fox, Apple. and yeah, Thomas, Thomas F. Wilson. Yeah, thank you. Good. Yeah, the the performance that we got out of the three of them was excellent with the direction that they were given, mm-hmm. um, and the scripts that they were given. However, the script in of itself was just sort of inherently flawed and not terribly interesting. I'll stick to my guns for what I said at the beginning. It's just not something that you're going to really be actively watching for. And sure, there's cute little tidbits that you'll pick up on, like small details, uh, Wheel of Fortune being played on one of the tabletop TVs in the 80s cafe, things yeah. like that. But there's nothing gripping. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I... This to me is the weak link. This is the worst of the three films. Uh, mostly because it doesn't know what it wants to be. It's goofy at the beginning. And then the sort of the bad 1980s is really grim. And there's a couple lost opportunities there. And then they go back into 1955 where they're sort of running around each other. And I'm glad that's not the entire film because that would have gotten tiresome. Mm-hmm. Marty trying to avoid Marty. Doc trying to avoid Doc. So forth and so on. I'm glad that's only like the last act of the film. And then at the end, again, my very favorite scene, which is the Western Union scene. If I were ever to remake this as like this five season Netflix gritty drama, I'd start there because that's a very evocative scene. But it's not earned because nothing up to that point is interesting enough to get there. And it never goes anywhere. That level of mystery and sort of how interesting it is, it doesn't follow through. Although the third film I happen to enjoy. So it feels uh, to me as though the whole movie was made as the premise to get you to come see the third one. Yeah, it it doesn't hold on its own the way, say, Empire Strikes Back does. Yeah. Or Temple of Doom, though that's different because those films are all essentially episodes. They don't really Mm -hmm. relate to each other. But yeah, I mean, 
if you look at, say, Star Trek 2, 3, and 4, which are a trilogy, Star Trek 3 is its own film. It has its own goals. It has its own, um, its own story points. It's not just, let's get you to the point where we can get them back to Earth for, for the, you know, to face the consequences. Like, it's its own thing. Yeah. This movie is very much about stumbling their way in confusion through various iterations of the past, present, and future until we can finally solve the character issues that Marty has and Doc has. Yeah, this whole movie can be summed up by the Hank Hill confused noise from King of the Hill, if you're familiar <laughs> with it. <laughs> Thank you, Heather. I'm glad that that didn't go over everyone's head. <laughs> so anyway, let's jump into the third film right away. And it starts with The Night of the Lightning. It's just like the second movie. It's the last scene from the previous movie, which is Marty going to Doc and saying, I know I was in the future. Now I'm back. And Doc Brown passes out. And then in probably the calmest of all three, the calmest scene out of all three films, mm-hmm. Marty quietly takes him home and goes to sleep. Yeah. It's probably the calmest, calmest, least manic scene in the film. Yeah. And then they go right back to batshit crazy again. Yeah. Something I do want to note about that final scene slash first scene in two mm-hmm. and three is they did way better of a job with the uh, the fire on the ground in CG and in practical effects in this than they did in the first movie. They did a much better job of creating that effect. And that's something that actually popped out to me. It's funny. I didn't notice that because I know it was always done with just gasoline and a lighter. Mm-hmm. The only time I ever thought it was really bad is when it shoots between uh, their their feet at the beginning of the first movie in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that was clearly green screen and it was bad. Yeah. Uh, like Heather said, their feet didn't even touch the ground. No, their uh, feet didn't touch the ground. The fire went through their feet. It was it was terrible. But I, that was something that watching it, I went, oh, oh, the the CGI effect of it still looks really, really good. It looks even better than the first time. And they did a better job of having that fire sit on the ground and look good for that shot than they did with just like the uh, the little bit of gasoline gel that they put on the on the ground yeah. for the first movie so anyway marty brings doc home doc wakes up the next day and starts talking into he starts doing, essentially doing a captain's log into mm-hmm. his recorder saying the time experiment seems to work but then i hallucinated that marty was there and of course marty goes yeah no i'm here and <laughs> doc brown has another freak out you know he seems very unstable at this point like 1950s doc brown does not seem like someone who is well no no he, he never has really but he seems so manic like he freaks out he locks himself in the washroom and in sort of a replay of the first 1950s encounter between marty and the doc the doc opens the door and says what proof do you have and in the last one he says ronald reagan's the president and this time it's you wrote me a letter doc you know <laughs> I don't know. It, it just seemed really silly, but I did like the next scene, which is where we learn that Doc Brown in 1885, he's been there for eight whole months. He has hidden the DeLorean. Now go find it. And so they go into an old mine and they find the DeLorean. It has been waiting there for all these years. And like the scene from the second movie, the Western Union scene, this to me was suggesting there was going to be, there's more, it's much more evocative of a mystery, like a serious mystery. Mm-hmm. and they blow it again yeah well the concept here is great i i love this this idea that well i need to get this this time machine 
to the future, mm-hmm. but I can't send it through time. So I got to manually send it through time. I'm going to hide yeah. it somewhere. Yeah. And I thought that that was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And by accident, of course, they discover that Emmett Brown is shot. What is it? A week after he sent the letter. Yeah. So they decide, oh, I'm going back in time to get him. And well, okay. Uh, so they go to the library. And again, another interesting scene. The scene in the library where they're trying to look up and figure out what the hell happened to Emmett Brown. And they're discovering the reason there's no information is because Mad Dog Tannen shot the reporter in town. And that's why there's no information. And this is where we learn that there were no Browns in Hill Valley because they didn't come until the uh, turn of the century. And they were the Von Brauns, which I thought was a neat tribute because, of course, Werner Von Braun was the one, you know, the father of American rocketry. It's kind of interesting that, you know, he even his his original name is scientifically related. I thought that was very cool. Of course, 1955, Doc Brown would have no clue who Werner Von Braun was. No. Not for a few more years anyway. But again, it's this everything's shrouded in mystery feel to it. And you just they piss it away. So then they go to, oh, my God, the most racist drive in ever. Yeah, it's not very kind to First Nations people. Did you notice what the sign at the end said just before he he does his 88 mile an hour run? Drive him home safely. Oh, God. Drive him home safely. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But remember, this is 1955. Yeah. And it's the 80s. Yeah. But again, it's 1955. If you made this today and they went back to 1955, Mm. I mean, you wouldn't have to be so in your face about it because, of course, they created this. But if you were going to depict a 1955 vision of what the Old West is like, that's it. Yeah. Like the way the way 1950s Brown dresses Marty. Yeah. Like those clothes with the red jeans and that horrendous shirt with the tassels. I'm not sure where he was getting that from. Is that like Roy Rogers? Probably. I mean, the the fringe has always kind of stuck around as Old West fashion, but like the... But yeah, but showman's Old West fashion, like Wild Bill Kickhawk's Wild West show, not actual people on the range. Yeah, no, even that was like a fringe on the bottom of a sleeve on a jacket. Yeah. This is not people actually riding and working in that gear. But I love how they make fun of him. Like he gets into the Old West and the first is like, did you get that off a dead? I like it was with a dead Chinese. That's a, that's another winner right there. I I love how they start to have fun with the tropes Mm -hmm. that Bob Gale, the writer recognizes he's writing about the old West through the eyes of people who have no clue because all they know is what the wild West they've seen on 1950s TV. I got a kick out of that. Yeah. Uh, It's it it does a good job of being self-aware enough to, poke fun at the racism and the ignorance of the time. Yeah. And uh, at I'll, least at least they did that well, and as opposed to playing it straight. Yeah, it's clear that Bob Gale, the writer, is winking at us. Yeah. In the meantime, Doc Brown of 1955 has been able to repair and rejuvenate the DeLorean because, of course, the fusion reactor is shot, the thing can't fly anymore, and it sat in a, a cave for 70 years, mm-hmm. but he sends his 1955 counterpart instructions on how to get the time machine working using 1955 parts so they've taken them to this drive-in and it seemed really contrived like why the drive-in why wouldn't you just choose a road like a long ass road yeah. but i guess he's worried about because they don't even say we don't want to be seen but i don't know what if the manager is there yeah you know i 
And, you know, the wall around the drive-in, I guess, is high enough that somebody walking on just the other side of the drive-in wall wouldn't see. But, like, if you're walking a block away, you'd see this car driving yeah. through it and leaving a This is a drive-thru. It is nowhere. This is a drive-thru. It is nowhere near City Lights. That's the point. Fair enough. Drive-thrus have to I be... Guess, I thought it was the arrival. They were worried about being seen. There's that, too. Yeah, because he says it's all open country. You don't have to worry about hitting anything. Yeah, like, uh, I, I didn't I didn't think they were that worried about the... Well, the 1955 people seen them. They okay. were really concerned about the 1885 people seeing them. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. Yeah that, yeah, that makes more sense. You're right. So the idea is that he's going to go to the very back of the, the drive-thru and drive straight at, well, the screen. And underneath the screen is this, what would you call it? Uh, is painted as this Wild West scene with natives in full headdress on horses. And that's part of the gag that when he passes through that into the past... The first thing he comes across are actual natives in those headdresses, on those horses, charging at him, which yeah. is amusing. And so, yeah, so suddenly he's in the past. He comes across these natives. He gets in his vehicle. The funny thing is the natives, despite the fact that coming at them is a 1985 DeLorean, they don't seem particularly phased by that. They don't even stop riding. He backs up, manages to go over a short hill. Conveniently, there's a cave there. He backs into the cave. The natives ride over top of them. None of them bothered to look. Where has the crazy machine we've never seen before gone to? Okay. And then the cavalry passes overhead. Okay. Like it's. Eh. Yeah, it's not great, but it's, it is what it is. Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, we realize that the DeLorean has been damaged. Its fuel line has been destroyed. There's no more gas. And Marty doesn't think to try and stop it because it doesn't occur to him. There's no gasoline in 1888. Yeah. And of course there is it, even though they did have gas, like internal combustion engine cars in, 19, in 1888. Yeah. You weren't finding those in California. No. You were finding those in Paris, which is, I think, where the first car was built. Uh, Paris or Austria or somewhere like somewhere on the continent. Yeah. Sounds Certain, right. Sure as hell. Not there. Yeah. <laughs> no, you, you don't have any kind of real manufacturing Maybe some plants in like New York and down the East Coast yeah. at that point, but nothing in California. And it's funny because later on when he says, yeah, there won't be a gas station in these parts for you know 30 years. I can't replace the gasoline. And at first I thought, this guy's probably got enough chemical engineering skills to replicate, you know, a jerry can worth of gasoline. But then it occurs to me, where would he get the chemicals in a frontier town in 1888 or 1885? Yeah. Yeah, you're not exactly able to go and, and pick up some combination of chemicals at the shopper's drug mart that you can mix together to create a combustible liquid. Well, let's start with something simple. Where would you get the petroleum? Yeah. Even raw, like out-of-the-ground petroleum, Yeah. right? <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's one of the few things they actually get right historically. Uh, in the meantime, he goes wandering off, and he falls out of a tree and gets hit by a car. Wait, no, I mean <laughs> he falls and smacks his head on a ranch. Well, because uh, he gets chased out of the cave by a bear. Right, right, right. Uh, then he wanders and gets hit by a car. No, no, he gets, he passes out and smacks his head and wakes up in a farmhouse with, again, as a play on that first and the second movie where he wakes up with Leah Thompson over him. He wakes up and Marty McFly's wife is there. And this made no sense to me. Why is that actress being used? I don't know. It would make more sense to have Leah Thompson playing that character, I guess. But, but. The whole idea is he's seeing versions of his family throughout the decades. Mm -hmm. But 
when he meets her in 1955, she's not related to the McFlys in any way. And in fact, she doesn't even know the guy. Yeah. Or, I mean, she's aware of them because they're in the same school. Mm -hmm. But so are these two, like, are these two families like intertwined? Is this like an incest thing or, you know, it's just. (laughs) (laughs) She did the least horrible Irish accent. Yeah, I guess maybe that's it. But I mean, it would have been easy enough to show her in the town as someone that McFly, like Irish McFly was pursuing and she's from another immigrant family and it doesn't happen. And then he could say, oh, one day those two families will get together, but not yet. You know what I mean? That at least would have made sense if she was the descendant of her own family and not because being a wife of McFly makes no sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because, like, it just, it seems silly. I get why they did it, because they've, it's a running joke through all these films, but it's just, Mm -hmm. it was clumsy. In the meantime, uh, there's a running, you know, there's, it's kind of funny where, you know, Marty, like, uh, what is, I keep calling him Irish McFly, but that's not fair. What's the dude's name? I don't remember. Seamus? Is it Seamus McFly? Yep. That sounds yeah. right. That's right. Yeah, Seamus McFly comes home with dinner, which is a couple of rabbits. And it's funny because he keeps spitting out the buckshot, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he meets his great grandfather, William McFly, who at that point is a baby. And, okay, that's amusing. He gives him a hat. And the next day, walk, you know, Seamus walks Marty to the train track so he can go into town. And we get to see the world's most generic Western frontier down ever. And, you know, like there's the bathhouse, which is literally a tent run by a Chinese immigrant with the, the long ponytail, which at least is historically accurate. Yeah. Um, because if you look at the pictures from the West, that's how Chinese immigrants were dressed. That was the that was the style. You know, he wanders into a saloon, which, of course, has the the prostitutes up top. And it's funny, I read uh, Roger Ebert's review of this film and he didn't like it. He, like he liked them less and less as they went on. And he points out that. This is such a generic saloon that the actors in it have been in 20 other Westerns. <laughs> like those three guys sitting at the table who are always making fun of them. Yeah. Did you recognize them? No. Heather, I, did you rec- I recognized one of the voices. Yeah. The, well, there's the guy with the white hair, right? Yeah. That, th- those actors have been acting in Westerns since the 50s. Like they were character actors who only did Westerns. And that's huh. who Robert Zemeckis brought in. It was almost a little much. I remember, you ever see the movie The Firm? Tom Cruise movie? No. Okay, not a, it, it's based on a John Grisham novel. And at one point, the mob shows up. And when the actors playing the mobsters got off the airplane, the audience laughed because they chose three actors who might as well have had the word mob tattooed on their forehead. Like They, they chose the three most generic Italian mobster actors they could find. And this is the same thing here. It's like, oh, look, it's extras from a Western film. <laughs> oh boy so heather i mean you've been sort of quiet on this film did this film was it any better for you than the other one than part I, two i didn't actually mind this one that's probably some sort of stockholm syndrome or something but <laughs> like I, I didn't actually mind this one too much it, it it had a beginning middle and end it had characters i didn't mind caring about okay. i mean i'm not i'm not gonna rush out and see it again but it at least I wasn't contemplating gouging out my own eyeballs. Well, I, I hope if I ever assign a film to you and you get that close to, you know, blinding yourself, you'll step away. I'd rather not turn on Skype and see you with two black pits where your eyes once were. That would be, uh, that'd be horrific. That's, uh, that's yeah. a different kind of movie. Yeah. That's a different kind of movie. Uh, trying to think what movie that, that happens in. What's the name of the movie? Uh, uh, Hellraiser? 
No, no. Uh, it was a horror movie, though. Uh, Event Horizon, where yeah, everyone yeah. gouges, where they see the horror. <laughs> Hellraiser see in space. What's that? Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's what it was, wasn't it? Yeah, where they, it's they, they, Hellraiser in space, yeah. Yeah, they gouge, they gouge their eyes out once they look. Uh, once they look in the engine room and see hell itself. So the saloon scene, like the saloon is essentially the cafe from, from the first two films and mad doc McFly comes in and you know, McFly, I thought I told you not to come in here. Oh, you, you know, you just look like him. And he says, what's your name, dude? He says, Clint Eastwood. There's this <laughs> running joke through the film that, that, that Marty thinks Clint Eastwood is like the toughest Western name out there. And they all think it's ridiculous. Just like, the shirt he wears and the pants he wears and even the, like he's wearing his Nikes. And one guy says, what kind of skinner is that? And, you know, it's like, they have no idea what this crap is, yeah. um, which is funny. I, uh, I do like that for a theme in this movie, if nothing else, that it really tackles like the preconceived notions that we've got about periods that we weren't engaged mm -hmm. in, like how we view them today versus how they actually occurred. Yeah, I, I do like that. That is a trope. Yeah, I mean, Westerns that we see in the 21st century tend to pay a lot more attention to how things actually were. Like they look at mm -hmm. they look at descriptions of the old West. They look at pictures and they try and replicate it. Whereas in the 50s, it was always very fanciful. Mm -hmm. And I kind of like that. It just it seems more it seems more realistic. I'm not sure if you've ever seen the TV show Westworld, not the movie, but the TV show. It's very much presented as a realistic Wild West but almost with 1950s level Western fantasy storylines, mm -hmm. like how the in the fifties, they imagined the wild West to be like, you could rob a stagecoach or rob a bank, or you could stop that, or you could meet the, the horror with the heart of gold or whatever. And yet the characters were all dressed realistically. Mm -hmm. Of course, for me, Westerns growing up weren't the movies that doc Brown would have grown up on. It was little house on the prairie which at least strive to be a little bit more realistic in how they presented the wild West, which was mostly calm. Yeah. Not, but, not uh, a whole lot happened all the time. Well, it was always, there was always something, but you know, it was the hijinks of a bunch of kids living in a, in a frontier town, but yeah, that's another matter. But the one thing I'll say is that this scene here where, you know, Marty McFly and, and mad dog Tannen get into it has one at the 31 minute mark has the best filmed scene in the entire show, which is when he runs out of the saloon and there's this tracking shot where Marty's out of, out of, out of the camera and, and Tannen and his guys jump on their horses. Mm -hmm. It's just a really well filmed scene. It's very smooth. And there's a couple shots there. And this is the most generically filmed set of movies ever. Like there's nothing special about the cinematography, but this scene in particular was well done. It's just something I noticed when I was looking at it this morning. Hey, that's kind of cool looking, you know? Yeah. And so they grab Marty. Uh, they try to hang him at the new courthouse, which is just being built. It doesn't even, in fact, it doesn't even have its clock yet. Yeah. Uh, and then Doc Brown shows up with this wild ass sniper rifle. Yeah. Uh, which is really hilarious. Like he's, it's literally just like a, what, what is it? A lever uh, action gun. Yeah. With this crazy telescope up top. Here's the thing. By the 1880s, they did have sniper rifles of sorts. Yeah, right? you had a scoped rifle, but you didn't have that. that <laughs> I think that was mostly, let's make a Doc Brown rifle. Yeah. You know, it was it was like a Rube Goldberg device because there were sniper rifles in like in the Civil War in the 1860s. Mm -hmm. I mean, accurate, they were great. But... Yeah, they, 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 <laughs> they were more, well, they were more accurate than 
you know, a non-scoped rifle, but this is this crazy wacky looking thing that only Doc Brown could come up with. Mm-hmm. And he shoots the, you know, he shoots the rope. He threatens uh, Tannen. And at least we finally find out why it was that Emmett Brown was shot. Because all we know is he was shot in the back by Biff Tannen on account of $80 and buried by his beloved Clara. And here we learn it's that Emmett Brown has been acting as a blacksmith, put the shoes on, on Tannen's horse. The horse the threw the shoe. Off. Yeah, he threw the shoe. It came off. He shot the horse. And now he figures that, was it $5 for the horseshoe and $75 for the horse? And Doc Brown says, well, considering he never paid me for it, I think we should call it even. Yeah. And he says, no. He says, okay, well, bring the damn horse back. I'll reshoe it. He says, well, I shot the horse. Like, well, that's not my problem. So it's not even a reasonable debt. But no. 80 bucks but, back then, that's a fuck yeah. ton of money. Yeah. Uh, you know. But when have any of the tannins ever been reasonable men? Yeah, that's the thing. Well, if you thought Biff Tannen was two-dimensional and Griff Tannen was even less dimensional, what the hell is this guy? He's a, he's a line. He's a, he's a cardboard cutout. Yeah. <laughs> what I do like is the, the running joke with Mad Dog Tannen is that his henchmen keep having to correct him. Mm-hmm. I'm going to... Sh- track you down in the streets and shoot you like a duck it's dog mad dog it's dog you know <laughs> you know things like that or you know he loses count and the other guy's got to show him where he was in the count because he's forgotten and it's bob gale was you know after he wrote the second film he went on to write the third one and started to have fun with his own tropes like he like we were talking earlier with the western tropes yeah but the thing is these films were filmed at the same time and they were written at the same time why didn't he go back and redo the second film that way You know what I mean? Like, I think the second film would have benefited from the winking to the audience that the third film does. At least that's what I, at least that's how I look at it. The more I think about it, the more I kind of stick to my conviction that the second movie was nothing but a prelude to the third movie. It seems as though the third movie was conceived first, that this was meant to be the sequel and they needed to put something in between they they'd realized that they couldn't come up with a better premise than the third movie so that was going to be the climactic one yeah it's like they they knew where the, fil- the second film had to start right yeah it's your kids marty yeah so they solved that entire problem in the first 20 minutes of the film right mm-hmm. and it's not until 35 minutes into the film that things got to be a little bit interesting which is when they arrive in dark 1985 mm-hmm and it's like they had no idea how to get from point A to point B. Look, I get it. I wrote a book once where I knew exactly how the book was going to end. I I'd hit about chapter 16, and I knew how like chapters 25 through 35 were going to be. And I literally had no idea how to get from where I was to where I needed to be. My solution was to look where the, the book ended and say, okay, how did I get there? Okay, take a step back. How did I get there? Take a step mm-hmm. back. And I kept working it backward until I had an honest to God connection. And yes, it was reverse engineering, but at least it made sense because I had to look at it every step on the way. How did I get here? Okay. How did I get there? These guys just seem to throw a lot of shit at the wall to connect. It's your kids, Marty to let's go to the wild West. Mm -hmm. Personally, I still believe this would have been more reasonably set in the 1920s when doc Brown was a teenager, but that's just me. Yeah. I think that would have made for a more interesting, a more interesting story, but whatever. Uh, so they go back to his, his blacksmith shop and apparently no one in the town 
has either noticed or seems to care that he has a refrigerator that looks like it's a battle mech about to rise out out of that <laughs> out of that barn and crush the town. Like it's the Rube Goldberg machine from hell. Yeah, um, it it gives some more of that Doc Brown settled in feel. It, it harkens yeah. back to the introduction of the first movie of Doc Brown's insane Rube Goldberg device to make a cup of coffee. Here's the uh, thing. Ice was available in the Old West. Yeah. Okay. It wasn't some fucking mythical thing. You built a cold house underground, not like 50 feet underground. You dug a trench mm-hmm. and you insulated the cabin. And in the winter, you froze water into large chunks and you would keep it over. It kept over the summer. You'd throw blankets over it to insulate it from the heat outside. But ice houses were a thing. I, it's not as convenient as having a tiny little ice cube on demand if you wait for six hours for it to be made. I just love that. <laughs> My question is, where did he get all that equipment? Like, did he um, did he steal a train locomotive in the middle of the night? Uh, he's he's the blacksmith. That's how. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, let's go with that. I like, started off with the still and yeah, like seriously, did like a tr- like a, a train pull into town and one morning they went out and it's like. There's no locomotive here anymore. What <laughs> happened to it? And suddenly there's a refrigerator in the blacksmith's place. So <laughs> I'm trying to figure out where we are. Uh, they just figured out the train. Or Yeah, right. Doc Brown looked out the window and saw the train and realized how they'd be able to get the uh, DeLorean up to 88 miles an hour. Well, yeah, no, first they try, remember, yeah, sorry, oh, they right. try a few things. And one they of try the fr- pouring first... some alcohol in. Yeah, well, first we get the, the little hint when the mayor shows up and says, remember, you promised to pick up the school teacher. Well, that's tomorrow. And then it's them trying to figure out how to get that thing up to 88 miles an hour. So the first thing they try is a team of like, what is it, six horses dragging the thing. And they realize yeah. there is no way we're ever going to get these horses up to nine, you know, 88 miles an hour. That's not going to happen. Then they, yeah, then they realize, well, let's try a locomotive. And they question the engineer and they realize they can get it up to about 88, but they have to dump all the cars. They have to get the engine as hot as like the fiery pits of hell, he calls it. And they might be able to pull it off uh, if it doesn't explode. Okay. (laughs) But, you know, this is the one thing that this movie does well that the second one doesn't. and and, And the first one does it well, too. This movie presents you with a problem. How do we get back to the future? Mm-hmm. And then 40 minutes in or 35 minutes in, we figure out how he's going to do that. We need a train. We've been presented with our problems. And a few minutes later, we meet Clara, the teacher. And now we have the B problem. And then we spend the rest of the film solving those problems. There's also the problem of how Emmett gets killed. In the second film, they throw you a bunch of problems. Then they solve all of them. Then they throw you a bunch of more and they solve those. Then they throw you some more and then some more and then some more. And it's all these, the second one is just all these little episodes of them being presented with problems and then solving them only to have another problem crop up. I think that's maybe why the second film is so problematic. It's a bunch of, it's, it, it's not a one long story. It's a bunch of little stories that are connected. Yeah. Whereas this one, we're 40 minutes in and we know everything we need to know. They need to get back to the future. They need to do it before uh, Tannen kills Brown. We know there's probably going to be a woman involved. That's it. Move on and fix that. Right? Then they meet the teacher. 
and you know she's got she's got like a runaway buggy they manage to save her and the horses before the buggy itself goes over the edge of a ravine and it clue they clue into it that the, the ravine is named after her because the story is that a hundred years ago a teacher fell into the ravine so they realize they've already changed history and Emmett Brown falls in love with her, so at least we know where the beloved Clara came from. There's a cute little love story between the two of them. It's very childish, though. It's about that deep. Yeah. Like, they I... make moony eyes at each other. Yeah. He follows her like a puppy. That's it. Yeah, like... it's a generic boy loves girl, boy pulls girl off speeding train, boy and girl live happily ever forever. Yeah, speeding card, but yeah. So now you have sort of this interplay between them trying to steal the train, which they know comes on Monday, and him sort of being led astray by Clara, who admittedly, um, you know, Mary Steenburgen, and I think she does a good job. She yeah. she makes the character sort of semi-interesting, but really all she is is she likes Jules Verne, and that's why he likes her. Yeah. So. Well, she, she's smart enough for him. Yeah. That's pretty huge. Ah. Uh, yeah, because you don't see that a lot in the films we've done, do you? I mean, someone that smart, you, you can't have him fall in love with someone he can't even talk to, right? Yeah, I, you're right. If you look at, um, I mean, you look at some of the movies we've done, Charlie in Top Gun, she's yeah. Maverick's equal, even though she's not a pilot. Marion is Indiana's equal because he, she's tough and she's brave. Well, up until she discovers she's a girl and she doesn't like snakes. Roxanne, her shoe fell off. Her shoe fell off. Yeah, Roxanne is C.D. Bale's equal. Uh, in fact, she's a lot more educated than he is. But they're they're both very erudite. They're both very worldly. They're both very intelligent. They're both very literate. But now, what's the name of Willie from? Uh, that's her name, Willie from Temple of Doom. Hmm. She's awful. You know, like she's. I, I seem to recall you didn't like her all that much, Heather. <laughs> not particularly. No, she's not. She's not a favorite. But is she any better than Jennifer, the girlfriend in this movie? She doesn't scream as much, but who's Jennifer? (laughs) Think of think of Jennifer from the second film, who sees herself and screams and passes out. Marty's girlfriend. Oh, right. Yeah, no, she she just doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. Like she's a non-entity. At least she wasn't annoying. Yeah, that was Willie's problem. She was really annoying to listen to. Well, like we said, if the elephant had stomped on her in the beginning of that film, no one would have counted that as a loss so clara is like you're right she is she's smart enough for him um she's as well educated as him she's as well i don't think it's about education she's as well read as him yeah right they bond over jules verne uh and to my embarrassment i've never actually read anything by jules verne uh i really should because apparently his books are wonderful uh, someone who's a scientist from that era would have been inspired by Jules Verne to become a scientist. Because if you think about scientists now, if you ask them, well, what inspired you? How many of them said it was Mr. Spock <laughs> or, you know, Star Trek in some form, right? Yeah. How many people have said I was a doctor because I was impressed by Dr. McCoy. Yeah. I, I guess it is kind of hard for him to tear himself away from her because he's clearly never met anyone in his life who, who matches him. But at the same time, he changes before he ever figures out that she's as smart as him. Like the minute he looks at her after he rescues her at the edge of that cliff, he's moony eyed and calm. Well, yeah, but like 10 minutes before that, he had been ranting at Marty that uh, true love doesn't exist. There's, yeah. there's no evidence. Yeah. So but, naturally, yeah, the next he, girl he sees, he has to fall in love with. That's, I know. <laughs> that's the rules. It just would have been nice if they'd had a chance to have 
a conversation first before he realized, but that, that would require, you know, good writing, I guess. These movies, they really do fall down when you start picking them apart. Anyway, she immediately after, you know, five minutes after she's been dropped off at her house by him, she's back in his face in town saying, my uh, telescope broke, can you fix that? And I'll see you tonight at the dance. Uh, the dance is kind of funny because, you know, in the first movie, uh, we joked about how they had that Huey Lewis song in there for no pr- other reason than let's have a popular song. Here it's ZZ Top. Yeah, but it, it's ZZ Top playing an original and... It was actually a neat song. Like It's the, good, yeah. It's, it's a, I mean, it's a real Billy Bob song, but, you know, it's, it's neat. Like, like Marty says, yeah, it's got a beat. You can dance to it. Cool. And very much like the, you know, the, the under this, the, uh, the enchantment under the sea dance, you've got the, the, the love triangle and here it's, it's mad dog Tannen trying to get a piece of Clara though. It's interesting because he doesn't actually want Clara. He doesn't seem to actually care. He actually wants to kill doc Brown. Mm Mm-hmm she's an excuse to have the conflict with like to get Marty involved in the conflict because it, you know, the, the argument in this dance comes down to, okay, I'll see you at Monday at eight o'clock and we'll have a showdown. And Marty has no actual intention to be there because he's going to be, you know, heading back to the future. And it's like, okay. And we also, this is where the wild gunman scene with Elijah Wood from back to the future two pays off that there's a demo for a gun and for uh, for a Colt in particular. Yeah. Again, you know, I, I guess I can't, I can't begrudge them that, that uh, product placement, a Colt revolver. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the wild west, I, right? I, I doubt that Colt probably paid for that, but. I don't know. I would think, I mean, anytime you mention a, a brand like that, there's got to be some understanding. You can't just use it. One thing, like I listened to this, I was listening to this podcast called the West Wing Weekly. And Josh Molina, who's one of the hosts of the podcast, was also an actor in the show. He talked about that, like how serious they are about if you name someone, if you give someone a first and last name, they have to start combing through phone books. Now they just do it on the internet, looking for that person to make sure Mm -hmm. they won't be harassed. That is why they're so careful when they give phone numbers. They all start with 555. Yeah. So that someone doesn't get calls at two in the morning saying, you bastard, you know, you said something mean about a character that I like and they're going what <laughs> like they're super careful about products and they're in like there's a legal department that goes through every script and says well what about this and what about that so I wonder if they did speak to Colt maybe they, maybe but like at my at my grandpa's house there was a box of western toys and the toy six shooters all said Colt I wonder like so that box was that from like when he was a kid or for when I think they to- were my dad's Okay, so that would put it in the 60s, 50s? 40s. 40s, okay. Well, 50s, I guess, because he, he would have been six in the six in 1950s. So. Okay. It's hard to tell. Maybe they were just less careful back then, or maybe it wasn't as big an issue back then, or I don't know. I mean, Colt is, you know, the gun that won the West. It's, it's hard to get around that. Uh, so it's hard to tell. I mean, I suppose I could look it up and see. You know, I could look up the... Uh, the director's commentary for this and see what Bob Gale has to say, but I don't know. In the meantime, again, it's a payoff for the wild, the wild gunman scene. Turns out he's a great shot for the record. A light gun from a a Nintendo entertainment system does not equate 
accuracy with an actual firearm, but you know, yeah, no. Um, they throw in the joke of uh, Mr. Strickland, you know, the the principal from the first two films. Here, he's the marshal, mm-hmm. and he says to his son, "Remember, it's always about discipline. I'll not forget, father." Like it's a cute one-off. I'm glad they didn't try and drag Strickland into this one more so. Like he's always been a scene here and a scene there. He's the one character I think we get just enough of. Like he's yeah. he never he never overstays his welcome. We we get enough Strickland. One scene per film is good enough Strickland for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, he is because he's, right. he's a non-entity. Yeah. You know. He he is nothing but a force that has acted on Marty McFly's life. Uh, he's not yeah. even a character. Well, he's a guardrail. He's a guardrail. Yeah. He's there to stop Marty McFly from from doing something intensely stupid because every time he's about to do something intensely stupid, like get into a fight with Biff in a cafeteria or be late too often in the 1980s or whatever, Strickland is there in one form or another to stop him. Mm-hmm. And here it's to stop a, a flat out gun battle in the middle of a party. Yeah. That's his only job. So this whole scene just sort of ends with, you know, there's going to be a duel and Seamus McFly in a badly filmed scene with bad special effects says, you know, you could have walked away. No one would thought any worse of you because we're back to this theme that both these movies have that well, are yet chicken. Like, yeah, we get it. Marty McFly has a problem with being called out as cowardly, but it's kind of nauseating. But of course, Marty McFly has grown just enough that he knows damn well, he's not going to be there for that shootout, which of course means he's going to be there for the shootout. And there's another nice romantic scene between Clara and uh, and the doc. And the next morning, Marty wakes up. Everyone knows his name. Hey, Mr. Eastwood, how are you? Here, here's a cigar, Mr. Eastwood. Would you like a new seat, Mr. Eastwood? Here's some guns, Mr. Eastwood. Like, everyone's really impressed because he's standing up to the bully. Okay. Well, the, uh, the suit doesn't count. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the last suit he's going to wear. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's funny that they don't mention that because the next time we see the same guy, it's like, I don't want a suit. No, no, this is for your coffin. He would have been funnier. I think if they had said when he measured him or when he offered him that new suit uh, and Marty had said, no, no, I've got a suit. If the guy had said, no, no, this is for tomorrow after the shootout, you know, (laughs) it's black for a reason. Yeah. It's a scene that's funny in retrospect. It's as close as they get to clever, I guess. Doc Brown sort of wanders into town floating on a cloud because, you know, he's in love with Clara. That night, they load the uh, the DeLorean onto the tracks. Uh, he has to convince, Marty has to convince Doc, no, no, you really do have to come back with me. You cannot stay here because Emmett Brown says, I have to do what's right in my heart. And he says, you're a scientist. What does it say in your brain? Like, that was like, here's a baseball okay. bat. Thump, 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 thump over the head, you know? It's, yeah. I mean, yeah. like, it it addresses the problem that we've all got with this is that Emmett Brown, as much as he claims to be a scientist who cares about the preservation of the timeline, doesn't give a flying damn about the timeline as soon as it benefits him or somebody he cares about. Yeah, he's also kind of not stable. Like No, no, not at all. <laughs> In addition to carrying out various acts of terrorism, including the uh, stealing of nuclear material and the hijacking of a train mm-hmm. uh, and its you know eventual destruction, he also apparently owns a sniper rifle. Not sure why he has that. So I'm afraid to ask what he's been doing in those eight months. And he's kind of not stable at all. Like this, like I said, in the dark, gritty five season Netflix show, Doc Brown is going to be a complete psychopath who will turn out to be the real bad guy in the end. 
though I'm not entirely convinced he's not the bad guy of these ones because everything that goes wrong is because he doesn't know when to back the fuck off. I've been saying that since the first one. <laughs> you had, <laughs> and it turns out you were right that the road to hell was paved with Emmett Brown's good intentions. Is this like Merlin? It's like we, we're fine. It's finally been revealed who the real bad guy is. It's Merlin from Top Gun. Oh, what was what was I Emmett Brown's What was that? Uh, what was Doc Brown's middle name? Uh, I I know that they they carve his middle initial onto the board. I think it's an L. Is it an L? Okay. Damn. That was that. If it was an M, that would have been perfect. Why? Because it would have been Emmett Merlin Brown, and we would have had our we would have had our joke just written for us. Uh huh. Anyway, (laughs) that night, uh, Doc Brown decides he really can't just leave Clara. He has to say that again. No. <laughs> so uh you know em- Emmett decides he just can't go without saying goodbye to Clara and he says you know I have to go back where I came from like it's actually a pretty nice little speech and she says you know if you love me you tell me why you why we can't do this and he says I'm from the future and she says that's bullshit of course she says it nicer but mm-hmm. that's what she says yeah and then in what I would argue is the funniest scene in all three films he staggers into the saloon asks for a drink and talks the night away with a shot glass in his hand, but never actually drinks it. And actually, it occurs to me, we missed the joke at the beginning of this movie when Marty asks for a drink, asks for a drink, yeah. and they pour it, and it burns the countertop. Yeah. You remember that? It's like, wow, that's, that's some rot gut there. Which, again, is, a, is making fun of an old you know, Western trope of this really strong, really cheap whiskey, that it actually, you know... It burns the countertop of the bar. But yeah, he stands there all night. We come in in the next morning and, morning and he's talking about cars and in the future this and in the future that. And Marty asks the bartender, how many has he had? It's like, none. He's been holding that one all night, mm-hmm. which is, you know, kind of funny. Uh, this is interdispersed with a quick scene where we learn that the teacher, has, Clara, has decided to leave town on the train. Ain't that convenient. In the meantime, Doc Brown takes the drink. And they give him wake-up juice. Now, I'm not a drinker, so i got to ask the two of you, consumers of alcohol, the wake-up juice that the bartender creates for Emmett Brown, does that look like something that would function? I mean, based on his reaction, yeah. But is that something <laughs> that would actually work? It would wake you up and make you hurl. Yeah. It dep- depends what it is. I mean, it kind of looks like Clamato with coffee grounds in it. and Tabasco. Well, co- Tabasco. Grounds, Tabasco sauce. There was the brine from pickled uh, eggs. Mm-hmm. in there yeah is that like is that like liquid stomach pump like <laughs> i i mean they're all touted as hangover cures i've used them all at some point or another and none of them work as well as a glass of water i don't know pickle brine wakes you up pretty quickly it doesn't sober you up but it wakes you up well so it would be beating you about the head but that doesn't mean i'm gonna do it if i come across you passed out drunk Actually, no, that wouldn't do it, would it? But in any case, so yeah, there's a there's a cute joke where they where they pour the stuff down his gullet and he freaks out and sticks his head in a in a in a horse a water trough and it's like he's asleep again. It's like no, that was that was just a reflex. In the meantime, the duel happens. That duel is drawn out forever. I found. Yeah, like we know he's going to be standing across the street from Tannen. We know he's going to have the shootout with him. 
And it just goes and goes and goes. And it's only really interdispersed with Clara jumping off the train, like hitting the brakes and jumping off the train because she's heard the story of one of the other passengers talking about Emmett Brown whining about his lost love in the bar. And she realizes he really does love me. The shootout ends. The shootout ending, of course, is just a reference to a scene from Back to the Future 2 where Biff and his three or two whatever uh, hookers are watching the good and the bad and the ugly where Clint Eastwood gets shot and it turns out he had a metal plate under his poncho. And that's literally what Marty McFly does. He puts a, what is it, the cover from an oven on his chest. Thankfully, the oven wasn't burning when he did it or he'd have, you know, (laughs) He had this great square emblazoned on his chest. Uh, <laughs> and then they hijack the train. And, you know, you saw the Lord of the Rings movies, right? Mm-hmm. Peter Jackson had always said that he made those movies because he wanted to film the Battle of Pelennor Fields, which is the big cavalry battle from Return of the King. Yeah. Do you get the impression Robert Zemeckis made all three of these films so he could film a train heist in a Western? It sure feels that way because boy, oh boy, has it got some effort put into it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's well filmed and they linger on it and they keep going back to it. It's like a 15 minute scene. Yeah. Like it's clear Zemeckis said, I'm never going to be able to make a Western again. Let's go for it. And the whole thing is very predictable how it is that it ends, which is Emmett Brown winds up having to rescue Clara and stays behind. Marty arrives in the future the the DeLorean is destroyed by a train. He goes back to Lion Estates where his girlfriend is in fact still lying there. You know, she has, she's still there despite the fact that the timelines have changed. They're driving along, they encounter needles. Finally, we get to see this, uh, this drag race, which injures Marty McFly. And we learn he's learned his lesson. He is no longer goaded into doing stupid things simply, simply by being accused of being chicken and then there's a cute scene at the end where doc brown appears with his wife clara and their two sons jules and Vern, in a time machine lo- steampunk locomotive yeah and again this is the second movie with mary steenburgen falling in love and marrying a time traveler so you know this film at least is better put together than the last one but yes much yep so you know, now we've looked at all three films, so maybe the trick is to look at this as a trilogy and sort of come up with a, you know, where we all stand with it. So I'll pick on you first, Heather. Looking at this as a trilogy, all three films, what do you think of it? Uh, I, I appreciate that Doc Brown never learned how to say gigawatt. <laughs> okay, fair enough. But what about, like, would you would you want to show your, your kid this movie one day, these movies? Would you Seems bother? unlikely. They're they're just bland. They're they're vanilla. There's there's other stuff I would watch. Yeah, I would I would skip to. Mm-hmm. I would summarize it for him. Yeah, a, a bunch of stuff happened and then they got here. Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, I mean, if they're if they're a trilogy and they're all on Netflix, why wouldn't you just draw? You know, burn through them in a night, sort of thing. You know, like that's how people do things these days, anyway. But eh, would you I, recommend it to your friends who hadn't seen it, like friends your age? who had never seen these films, would you say, this is an 80s film you should go back and catch up on? Only the first one. The second one, I, w- I would totally just forget it existed. The third one's is adequate. The first one, if you want to be conversant with the 80s, you have to see. Mm-hmm. Okay. Adam? Uh, 
there's certain people that I would tell, hey, go watch the first movie. But I don't think that most people my age who didn't grow up with it would care because we've had the same story told different ways that has been more cohesive. It's something to watch. There's nothing as a, as a trilogy. There's nothing deeply offensive about it. It's just not great. Um, it's nothing. It's not compelling. It's something to have on on the TV while you're doing something else, or just have on in the background while you're doing something else, just to have something happening. It's not. It's not a masterpiece. Oh no, no. I look at this trilogy the same way I look at the Matrix trilogy. The first film is fine. It was innovative for its time. It was a hit in its time, and you know I would say deservedly so. It it has all the right pieces to be interesting but if you're going to watch the trilogy understand that part two and part three were add-ons they were never intended to be and this is what happens when you try and take a film which was just fine on its own and try to pile more onto it and it doesn't work okay it's not quite as true with like the start the original star wars trilogy even though he made that one film and had no real intention of carrying on that film laid enough of a foundation because he envisioned it as, well, what if this was episode four of a larger movie serial? He threw enough in there that he could build on it. So Empire Strikes Back doesn't seem so disconnected from the first film. But this one, I would say, if you're going to watch it, watch the first one. But no, it did not flow into a second and third film as well as the Indiana Jones films or the Star Wars films or the Matrix film. But if someone was looking for like three neat films for a fun, you know, sort of a kickback with the with the friends and, you know, just enjoy a film, I would say, OK, go ahead and do the trilogy. Go nuts. You know, the funny thing is I've heard that they keep talking about bringing in a fourth film, which I'm not sure how that worked because, you know, Christopher Lloyd is is a very old man and Michael J. Fox. There's no way he's able to act anymore. I mean, no. I, I simply don't think his health would allow him. It would take them, you know a year to film it because it would take that long to get good takes out of him. And I don't think it would be, I don't think his health would stand for it. So I can't imagine every time they talk about a fourth one, like what do you do with that at that point? Are you just rebooting it? And I ask, what's the point you get, you get some crystal skulls and blame the aliens. Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) Well, in the meantime, they're going to eventually do a Tron three, but they're rebooting it. Well, that point, what are you doing? Why bother? So yeah, there it is. We've done them. Heather, you've proven yourself not to be chicken, but I'm still going to drag race you next time I see you. And uh, yeah. Any last thoughts? Do you want to toss out a thank you for our most recent um, podcast review? <laughs> HYV, did a, you know, who we did a call out to in our last episode, went and wrote us a super nice review. So we thank you for that. And hopefully more will go and write us uh, reviews. Though, of course, because we mentioned Donald Trump, you know we're going to get two or three really bad ones. Yeah. Um, because all of our negative reviews are because we say something about Donald Trump. Tell you what, viewers, if we get uh, if we get another 10 reviews in the next short while, I'll force Baron to read them and thank you all individually. No, you won't. <laughs> I'll try. Yeah. Hey, but if you if you do want to engage with us a little bit more, you can follow us on Twitter at uh, We Came From The 80s. You can find us on Facebook as uh, We Came From The 80s. And you can also find us on Instagram at We Came From The 80s. Yeah. We are not always... Perfect about responding on Instagram, but uh, Farron is is very good about keeping the Twitter up to date. So, yeah, it, chances are if you're talking to us on uh, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, chances are you're talking to me. Uh, yeah. yeah, and there it is. There it is. Thanks, everybody. 